This episode of Thrash It Out is sponsored by you, and that is because we are a 100% independent and unbiased show with no advertisers or sponsors. Instead, we are funded entirely by our listeners, people like you who support the show with as little as a dollar per episode because it all adds up and helps us to keep thrashing. So go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to make your pledge today. This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston, and today we are going to be talking about uh, the seminal 1996 album from Typo Negative, October Rust. Boy, are we going to oh, talk yeah. about it. One of my favorite album from one of my top three all-time favorite bands. So, With, Yeah, without spoiling anything, I will just say that I love this pick because what a great topic for discussion this album is so it begs to be talked about <laughs> the whole band begs to be talked yeah, oh, about absolutely <laughs> yes absolutely but man what a what a great uh pick for a show for sure yeah 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 absolutely well and it's i mean like i say this is my favorite album of theirs but it also once again follows this uh theory of ours of talking about the most interesting albums i mean you can make an argument that the album prior to this which was bloody kisses which was type of negative second album and was their real breakthrough that was the one i think at the time it became roadrunner's best-selling album ever like by any band i believe uh, it, it was their first one to go platinum Right. It was absolutely insane. It was such a massive hit and really exploded Typo onto, you know, the, into the metal world. They'd toured for like two years nonstop off the back of it. It was huge. So, you know, that's interesting from that perspective. But I think this album is equally interesting, if not more interesting, because of, you know, coming off of the back of that and then moving into an album like this. So, but we'll get into, we'll get into all that later. But yeah, absolutely. Lo- lots to talk about. Um, so last, uh, first of all, apologies to everyone for taking a while to get this episode out. Brian and I have just had a lot of things going on uh, in our lives the last uh, month or so. And it was actually, it was about a week ago, I suddenly, I think I was in this in Slack, wasn't it? I suddenly messaged you and went, shit, it's been a month. <laughs> it's like time flies. Um, oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, but here we are now. Here we are now. And uh I was actually, as I was getting ready this morning and, you know, getting my coffee and all that kind of stuff, I was thinking that this is one of the most fun things that I get to do is just sit and talk music with you for an hour and a half, two hours at a time, because that, that is something that, uh, just brings me a lot of joy. So, and it, it, it feels like a much needed break for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It is, you know, as any regular listeners will know, this is a fairly casual show where, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, we don't really sort of follow much of a formula. We don't have set pieces and segments with stings and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's, uh, it's very much just a couple of friends sitting and chilling out and chatting about, uh, about metal. Oh no, sorry. We're supposed to be arguing, aren't we? Arguing. We are supposed to be arguing. Metal. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we might argue about one or two songs today, but I, I think, uh, I don't think we're going to argue too much today, but we'll see. Okay. All right. All right. Well, uh, first thing I want to do uh, is welcome new patrons since our last episode. And those are uh, David Lawrence, Tony Gallardo, and Aaron Southard. 
Southard, Southard, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Very sorry. Um, thank you very much for becoming patrons and supporting the show. Uh, as always, anyone else who wants to become a patron can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out uh, to help keep the show going. Um, and the last episode was, of course, the Twisted Sister episode. And the reaction to that was, well, there was a lot of reaction to it, and it was pretty amazing. I was really surprised how many people were like me who just assumed that Twisted Sister were a hairband and, you know, sort of didn't bother investigating further because of that, and who then, obviously, you know, we introduced them to Twisted Sister in the course of the episode and were shocked, like I was, at, like, how not a hairband they were. <laughs> I got to tell you, that that was, I think, of all the episodes that we've done so far, I have been most overjoyed about the reaction to the Twisted Sister episode because we talk all the time about how Man, I, I, we just want to introduce people to bands that they haven't listened to before or maybe dismissed out of hand back in the day or, or never caught on with. Um, and to have people react the way that I hoped that they would react, which was basically like, yeah, I knew these two goofy videos they had on MTV. I had no idea, you know, these guys were actually a decent band or were pretty heavy or had these amazing songs. And so, yeah, I'll just read a couple of the comments off of our Facebook, but uh it was it was awesome. Uh, let's see, Phil Toretto, who I was no, it was no surprise that Phil was a fan of Twisted Sister, but he said, "I am absolutely an SMF." Listening to this episode took me back to the eighth grade. I listened to this album nonstop. I saw Twisted Sister on this tour in 1984 with Y and T and Lita Ford. Uh, to this day, it's the most fun I've ever had at a show. D. Snyder absolutely owned the crowd by the end of the show. Uh, Darren Gleaton said, what a fun episode. It's always nice when Anthony actually enjoys one of Brian's picks. I was expecting <laughs> him to have a completely different reaction to this one, uh, which I, I think a lot of people multitudes. were. <laughs> I think, I think that was, uh, well, you just said, I mean, I think it was a surprise to a lot of people. Um, let's see. The album else. was a surprise to me. That's the thing, you know, yes, my, if they had, if they had just been a hair band, then I think my reaction would have been entirely predictable, but because yeah yeah it's as a surprise to me they weren't at all what i was expecting so yeah i'm i'm glad to have surprised listeners <laughs> and in that vein like i have been trying to choose fairly carefully because um we haven't really gotten into the real what i would call accurate descriptions of hair bands yet like we haven't really done a hair band yet that was sort of a product of that time in in the way that I think of hair bands, but I'm trying to ease people right, we haven't into done it. I'm trying to tour a band like that. Yeah. I'm trying to earn some capital with people before I <laughs> take them down that road because I don't want them to jump off, you know, jump ship when that happens. Sure, but sure. Uh, our buddy Don Cardenia said, uh, I was utterly shocked at how much I dug this album, really enjoyed it. Um, Greg Anderson recommended that if people liked this album and want to know more, they should check out D. Snyder's Widowmaker, which was a band that he did after Twisted Sister. Um, and they had a couple of good albums and, and definitely a handful of good songs. So they're worth checking out. Uh, David Lawrence said, great to talk about a band I had written off as just another hair metal group. As with other groups, you gents are turning my expectations upside down. And it, as a segue, he said, uh, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for October rust as the next review typo changed my life musically. And were probably my first metal crush. Love you to death. Burnt flowers fallen and wolf moon was where it all started. Wow. So awesome. uh, clearly this album is tied to people's origin story here. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see what else. Kenneth White said, so I was very skeptical when Brian chose Twisted Sister. All I knew were the big two singles and fun as they are, I never really needed to hear them again. I was sure I was in for some 
rubbish, probably hair metal. Well, I was wrong. Yep. Yep, exactly. Um, uh, by the way, somebody, um, forgive me, I forget who pointed it out, but somebody pointed out we were confused about the uh, the whole Captain Howdy thing. And it turns out, of course, that's a reference to The Exorcist. It's, oh, uh, the demon? Y- yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what he calls himself the first time that the, I think, is the is it the first time the priest goes in and tries to exercise or something? Um, but yeah, it's like, and I can't believe that I didn't, that just completely... I'm not the biggest Exorcist fan in the world. Um, I think it's a very overrated movie, frankly. Come at me. Um, so it just didn't enter my mind when we were talking about it. But yeah, as soon as he said it, I was like, oh God, yeah. So that's, I mean, obviously the the character in the song that Dee Snyder's made up is his character. But that's clearly where, you know, you wouldn't make up a name like that in a genre like this without knowing that's what you're doing. You know? Sure. Yeah. Um, Obviously a nod to, to sort of his horror yeah. influences. And he, when he talked about that, when he talked about that um, song, and I think we mentioned it in the last episode, he was trying to create like a horror icon, like a Jason, right, a right. Freddy in Strangeland obviously did not turn out to be that sort of franchise that he was looking for it to be. But, um, but yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize that either. And if I had ever known that I completely forgot about it. So um talon gallego said on the topic of docu- uh documentaries if you haven't you absolutely have to check out metal a headbanger's journey and global metal and and for people that maybe missed that when we talked about it episodes back those are the ones that sam dunn did and he is the one that does metal evolution on vh1 classic which i have uh now seen all of and thoroughly enjoyed yeah yeah i mean even if you agree disagree with some of the categories that that uh some bands fall into it's a fascinating look at you know the different aspects of metal it really uh, let's is, yeah. see who else do we have levi levi uh, gribben said finally listened to this one good podcast and read the comments and was a little surprised to see no one mention this and he put the clip of the goofy goober song from the spongebob squarepants movie where they do uh basically their version of i want to rock but he's singing about being a goofy goober i don't know if you watched that clip on the facebook page anthony i i did yes yes i've never seen spongebob squarepants in my life so you know i had to sort of take some of it as red but yes i did get it and it was because at first i thought oh okay this is quite kind of a sort of like a close pastiche but the the longer it went you know as it went along i was like oh no no this is like you can't get away with something like this without it being authorized and then turned out it was authorized well yeah and then there's also like this david lee roth moment in there that i really like too and 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 spongebob you know it's been around for whatever over 20 years now but there's some fantastic references in that show over the years and uh, a lot of a lot of great stuff for the adults to enjoy while their kids are enjoying everything at the superficial level. So um, let's see. Brian King said, I just discovered Thrash It Out a few weeks ago when searching for podcasts that talk about high and dry. Anthony, ah. how about that? <laughs> uh, oddly enough, I love every episode that I've heard. The only struggle is I'm eager to revisit these classic albums as I'm hearing you speak of them, but I'm equally eager to hear your next episode. By the way, I'm shocked that you two didn't acknowledge that Twisted Sister re-recorded Stay Hungry, uh, and it was titled Still Hungry. Brian may prefer the classic version that we grew up with, but I think Anthony would appreciate the better production. Um, So there's like two re-release versions, because I believe that they did the anniversary edition of Stay Hungry, where they they sort of remastered – everything which the original is, tracks yeah right. exactly and then they did still hungry i'm not a fan of those well i shouldn't say that well, no we've talked about this before and yeah that they're, they're generally i think we're both agree that generally a bad idea because it's really hard to get the same energy in a re-record 
uh you know yeah. that you that you might have had 10 15 years ago when you know you were all a lot younger uh and hungrier yeah frankly um, i mean yeah, i get I'm, why bands do that but i don't i i, I like the impurities of, it, yeah. of the original right, recordings right. like i really do i like it and i i had a lot of trouble when when dave mustaine went and remastered all of megadeth's albums for this big collection that they put together and he took out you know stuff like the uh, the feedback from the amps, or stuff like a pick no, scratching against uh, you know a, a string or something like that. It's like when you clean up the stuff that makes it feel like you're listening to them record it in the studio. I think it just loses something, and so um, so I'm not usually a big fan of them. The one exception that I can think of in my head, and I might have mentioned it on the Facebook page, was the Greater of Two Evils Anthrax album, where John Bush went back and re-recorded some of Joey Belladonna stuff, but they did it. I think they did it over three days in the studio, and there was like a bunch of people in the studio listening to them, but they right, recorded right. it all together. So, so they played more, them. It was more like a gig. Well, exactly. and also, you know, that's not the same because it's a, it's a different singer. So that's going to have its own different sort of feel and energy right. to it. That would be like, I mean, not that they ever did, but that would be like Genesis going back and recording... Uh, one of the Gabriel albums with Phil Collins or something. And you kind of did get that actually on some of the later Genesis live albums because they did sing songs from that era. So I have less of a problem with that because when you've had a personnel change, especially the voice, which is obviously so important for right. so much music, I, yeah, that I'm not so opposed to. But when it's literally the same band... Just doing it, the same it, thing. It's Well, it's doing a George Lucas, isn't it? Yeah. Really? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's it's saying, oh, you know, we were so young and naive when we did that that we think we can do it better now, even though we're all it's all just the same people. It's like, no, people fell in love with it the first time around. You know, don't screw with it. <laughs> just leave it. <laughs> but by the same token, like I I know that some people actually prefer the cleaned up versions in the remasters, and also they like the re recordings and stuff. So you know, to to each their own. Absolutely, you know, totally. No, those you, people are wrong. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. There's your argument for the week. We're arguing yeah. with the audience now, so that works <laughs> yeah. out perfectly. Um, so great comments on the Twisted Sister one. I, you know, I'm so excited. Please don't hesitate to go to the Facebook group and post on there about a band that you your feelings changed about when you listen to an episode. Because honestly, those are my favorite posts to read. I absolutely love those. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and I, is... I do want to shout out real quick before we get off the Facebook stuff. Um, I'm trying to sort by people that recently joined the Facebook group. So uh, just looking in the last month, we've got Matt Hodgson, Patrick Wilding, um, Talon Gallegos, Dan Davidson, Aaron Mitchell, Brian King, uh, Thrash Mania joined, Seth Anderson, Jesse Jardine, uh, Aaron Mitchell and Mike Barabalt, who is a guy that I was standing next to at a concert that I went to a few weeks ago up here. Uh, I went to see Disturbed and Breaking Benjamin and oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Alter Bridge. And the guy that I was sitting next to was there with his son, and it was this guy, Mike. And so we're talking over the course of the um, you know, concert and in between bands and stuff like that. And of course, I find a way to bring up the podcast in that discussion at some point. Um, because as soon as I have a good five minute conversation with somebody about music, I'm going to tell them that they need to check out the show. Of course. And so he actually joined the Facebook group while we were there at the concert. So if he's listening, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. And uh, I can't tell you how many people that I've met at shows in the past year where we end up talking about the podcast and stuff. So, uh, and the concert itself was really good. This was the third time I think I saw Disturbed and they were 
great as usual. And the place was almost sold out. Like I couldn't believe it was an outdoor amphitheater and, you know, lawn area. And I haven't seen that place filled to that capacity since like the heyday of Ozfest or, you know, like a freaking Dave Matthews concert or something. It was packed. And oh, they are a popular band, man. We they should are do super a Disturbed album. I, I think Disturbed get a bad rap from a lot I do of metal too. fans. I, I really like them. I totally agree. And, you know, I think some, I, I can see why some people are a little bit turned off by them, but I think that if you give their music a chance, there's a lot of good stuff there. And I will also say that I will definitely at some point do an Alter Bridge album because I think that's a band that people tend to dismiss out of hand because they were formed out of the ashes of Creed. But if you have followed Miles Kennedy's career at all, um, the stuff that he did, I think he jammed with Led Zeppelin. He's the singer for Slash's group. Um, and he also does Alter Bridge and him and Mark Tremonti are the two main songwriters for Alter Bridge and every album they put out gets better and better. And they have some absolute crushers, which you probably wouldn't realize if you've only seen, you know, the couple of videos that they put out and stuff, but they were super heavy and super tight in concert. And I was, I was looking forward to seeing them and they did not disappoint. Cool. Good. Uh, that Facebook group, uh, just to anyone who hasn't um, seen it yet, the address is facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. And yet we have over a hundred members in that group. Now we have more members than we do patrons, which is, uh, you know, uh, predictable, I suppose. Um, but yeah, we're working on our uh, conversion rate. Right. <laughs> but, but it's a thriving group. There's a lot Come of people there. Come for the Facebook there. group. Stay for the Patreon. Yeah. There's a lot of people there, a lot of conversation. So yeah, you know, uh, pop along and uh, and have a chat. Oh, someone posted this morning, uh, again, not to keep dwelling on the Facebook group stuff, but it was Kenneth White posted this morning the new song off of the next Suicidal Tendencies album, which is coming out in late September. And it is a complete nod to their old school stuff. And they have oh, Dave totally, Lombardo yeah, on drums yeah. from Slayer, and it's freaking awesome. So if you want to check that out, go to the Facebook page and give that a listen. But I was already hey, actually, in for that album. Uh, yeah, yeah. The same guy, actually, Kenneth White as well, also recommended the debut from a new band called Spotlights also this morning. And I literally listened to that before we started the recording. Uh, and I enjoyed it a lot because it's doomy shoegaze stuff. Um, it's got kind of the vocals are a bit light and pretty, uh, but it has some very, very heavy musical moments It's a husband and wife team, apparently. Um, and uh, he described it as like, uh, you know, listen to this if you like. And then, for example, said Alcest. Uh, which were a band that somebody else on the Facebook group recommended that I then got into recently. Um, and I kind of like them, but Alcest get a bit, they get a bit fairies and noodling, as uh -huh. I call it, at times. Uh, and this is this does not have that. This is much more, you know, much more heavy and less noodling. <laughs> that reminds me that we need to eventually, maybe in season three or four, start a glossary on the Thrash It Out podcast website um, so we can take terms like fairies and noodling and define those a little bit better for anybody that's <laughs> listening to the episode so they can go like, oh, that's exactly what that means. Or, you know, when these guys say hair metal, they're talking about Cinderella and Danger Danger and, uh, you know, a couple of those bands. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll have to do that. Uh, yeah, but that, I, I, I foresee Danger because as soon as you do that, you, then you start all the age-old arguments about, well, like, you know, classifying bands and genres and does this band fit here or there? And Maybe we'll just like keep the, it to terms that we've created that way. Like, we're right, not, right. Otherwise, it'd be like the letter pages of Kerrang all over again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, oh, uh, I also wanted to say to people, uh, the next thing we do, uh, probably in the next week or two, will be one of our video hangout shows uh, where we answer questions from patrons. Um, so if you are a patron, look out for that in your 
um, uh, your thread about that in your inbox soon. And we'll record that, yeah, sometime in the next week or two. And we're also on that show going to do something else extra for our patrons, So, uh, which is going to be fun. So, uh, yeah, you know, do make sure to... Um, Keep your eye on your inbox for a notification about that. And uh, once again, the address, if you want to become a patron, is patreon.com slash thrash it out. So, typo negative. Typo negative. Let me just say, Liam Ayers, uh, who is one of our patrons, um, in the album poll where we talked about Mastodon, in that poll, he suggested Bloody Kisses. The second album, sorry, the album before this, the second album by Typo Negative. Um, And... I mean, it wasn't picked, but I admit, and I'm sorry, Liam, but I admit that I was actually hoping it wouldn't get selected <laughs> because I wanted to talk about this one instead. And if it had, fine, you know, I'd live. Um, but I I already knew that I wanted to talk about this one. So when when that came up in the poll, I was like, oh, I kind of hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel bad about, but you know. Well, that's uh, there was plenty of albums that came up in that poll that I was like, oh, we're doing that band, but probably not that album. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I think there were a few like that on both sides, weren't there, from me and you. Um, so, yeah, Typo Negative, uh, for people who don't know, they are a, or sorry, they were a, they're now defunct uh, due to the death of the frontman five, six years ago. Um, they were formed in 1989, I think, and then, you know, signed in 91. Uh, they're a New York band, Brooklyn specifically, uh, all old school friends. They literally grew up together, the four founder members. And there are lots throughout their, you know, music. There are lots and lots of in jokes about New York and Brooklyn uh, in Peter's lyrics, um, but also in the, you know, in jokes on the album sleeves and the credits and stuff. I don't know if you noticed, if you, um, but anybody who's got a CD of typo out there, look for in the credits. You will often find backing vocals by the Benson Hoist Lesbian Choir. <laughs> Oh, which nice. is which is basically just the band members. It's them. They do their own backing vocals, right. and obviously they're quite deep voiced, so they they credit it as the. But they they even spell it Benson Hoist, which just cracks me up. Um, well, first so, thing about typo negative <laughs> that I had no idea about is that they were from New York. Like if you oh, had right, just yeah. asked me, like where do you think that New York would have been the last place in the world that I would have picked? Which, I, as I learned really? more about the band, is obviously part of their charm is that you've got this lead singer who. You know, um, we'll we'll get into his vocal stylings in a minute, but I would never pick him as as being a New Yorker until you hear him speak normally, and then you're like, "Holy crap!" You know, obviously these guys are so uh, so. Yeah, that was one thing. I, I literally knew nothing about this band other than the couple of videos that I had seen on MTV or songs that I had heard on the radio. Right. So, where would you have thought they were from? Oh, I would have thought they were from England in a second. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Or Transylvania. Wow. I mean, based on, (laughs) (laughs) which we'll talk about in a minute, but, uh, but yeah, no, I had no idea they were an American band. Ha, that's so funny because like, to me, I don't know, they kind of, they couldn't be anything other than New York. Um, That is so funny. But you know, they don't, to me, sound like an English band at all. Um, I think of uh, My Dying Bride to me is probably the sort of quintessential, you know, English metal band in this style. Uh Um, and obviously, you know, they Although it's a similar sort of genre, the two bands do sound very different. Um, so yeah, because uh, Typo were kind of when they were first being uh, when they first hit the press over here, the metal press te- kept referring to them as a uh, gothic hardcore band. 
Really? Think, yeah, I know, I know, which is like, really? And I think that would a lot be the that, last term I would use to describe them. Well, especially on this album, that yep. was mostly talking about uh, their first album, Slow, Deep and Hard, and Bloody Kisses. Bloody Kisses has more uh, hardcore crossover elements, for sure, uh, certainly than this album. And even than their first album, which is really uh, kind of... Slow, Deep and Hard was very much a... I mean, it's their debut album, but it was also... The whole album is based around um, sort of the breakup of Pete Steele's relationship at the time. And it's got long, slow, dirgy passages and then, like, these manic bursts of hardcore thrash. Uh, It's a, you know, it's a very uneven album. (laughs) It's good. I'm going to go back and listen to that because I I really just focused on this album for for this particular episode, and I haven't dug into their other stuff, although I did go Uh, back and listen to Carnivore. Because ah, I, when I found right. out that he came from a thrash band before, I was like, huh, yes. let me go back and listen to that. And they were legitimately thrash. And so I I kind of dug. I forget which album I listened to of theirs, but I think they had two albums. And yeah. I went back and listened to one of them, and I kind of dug it. So I, I may uh, – but I'll definitely dig into the rest of Typo's catalog. But I wanted to just have the the sort of headspace of this album. And uh, boy, there's a lot to talk about with it. Right, right. Well, and I'm not sure. Okay, so if you're not, if you didn't listen to other stuff, I'm not sure how much their sense of humor comes across. And like oh. I said, the, there are lots of in jokes and stuff about New York and Brooklyn, but within the songs as well, like as a band, they were renowned for being having an incredibly dry and self deprecating sense of humor and just, you know, having a. Everything has a, a vein of sarcasm <laughs> running through it. In their I think entire... their entire existence right. is a joke, like a joke on. I, I my thought as I was listening to this album was most ninety nine percent of their fans cannot be listening to this band like unironically. You know what I mean? Like I, everybody's got to be in on the joke with this band, right? Like that's all I kept thinking while I was listening to them is that clearly this is. Uh, this is something that they're sort of winking and nodding at the audience through through basically their entire sort of shtick. And I think that you can detach yourself from that and enjoy the evocative imagery that this band sort of conjures up with, with all of their songs and their lyrics and things like that. But from the very get-go, I mean, from the opening, obviously, which is very sort of jerky boys jokey um, in the beginning of the album, like, to me, the the whole existence of the band is with a wink and a nod. It, it kind of is, but I don't know. I think, I, on the one hand, I agree with you, but I think we may be assuming that the audience is nodding and winking at different parts of it because I do, uno- genuinely, unironically, absolutely love this band's music and most of the lyrics. But at the same time, I can see that they are. It's a bit like like a, uh, when we talked about My Dying Bride and I said about uh-huh. how there's a sort of a deliberate theatrical, you know, there's a, a self-awareness of, the, like, yes, we're being pretentious. Yes, we're being theatrical and dramatic. That's that's kind of the point. That's part of what we do. And I think there's the same thing here. Obviously, in a slightly different direction to My Dying Bride, but there is this, like, okay, we're being pompous and overblown and exaggerated to make a point. But at the same time... There is, a, I think, a very serious undercurrent to most of, certainly, Steele's lyrics. Oh, um, yeah. I, I'm not, like, I also, I want to be respectful of that, too, because I, you know, I scribbled down so many thoughts as I was listening to this album, and I, I probably listened to it 25 times at least, you know, as we got ready for this. But um, 
it's I I think that compositionally I was really impressed with this band. Like I I like the arrangements, I like their approach to the music. I definitely think that Steele's lyrics are uh are always interesting even when they're super cheesy. But there was a part of me that immediately like I thought of Kiss, I thought of King Diamond, I thought of Wasp, I thought of Guar, I thought of Alice Cooper, I thought of uh all of those bands that have a very theatrical and um caricature element to them as I experienced typo negative. Like the these guys are putting forth a persona. And again, it, it made all the more I think interesting and amusing to me that there are these Brooklyn dudes who are you know like I'll I'll just tell you these are the um these are the possible album titles that I wrote down for this album. Okay, like if I was going to title it. So, um what were the album titles? Strad von Zarevich sings Duran Duran. That was one thing that I wrote down. <laughs> and if you don't know Strad von Zarevich, then you have not played Dungeons and Dragons, but he was the uh he was the uh, lord of Castle Ravenloft. Um Let's see. So songs from Castle Ravenloft. That was another one. Right, right. Um, I think my favorite of the list I came up with was Music to Get High and Fuck To, Volume 2, because I think that is absolutely what this what this yep. album is. Uh, the soundtrack for Monster Squad 2, Dracula's Revenge, and the soundtrack <laughs> to a direct-to-DVD Lost Boys sequel. Like, to me, there were the persona of this band is something like if you were watching a 1980s horror movie, and there was a gothic band playing in a club scene where one of the main characters went to, this would be the band that was playing in the background at this club scene. Right. And well, it and made me love them even more because they just wholeheartedly immersed themselves in this, um, you know, seductively gothic, you know, vampiric sort of uh, imagery. And I, it just made me it made the whole thing more interesting to me right but being fully aware that they are just four you know guys Without from a doubt. brooklyn yeah and um, it, it, like i admired that i was like dude these guys like what these guys have crafted in terms of their overall persona and the imagery that they conjure is pretty damn impressive because when you realize that they're four dudes from new york like not not that you know dudes from New York can't come up with that kind of stuff, but it just like that that sort of contrast was constantly playing in my head, and I was like, "This is impressive." Yeah, well, and the uh, you just reminded me that one of the uh, sort of first things that really made me laugh was um, I think it's on the back of their second album it was called "The Origin of the Feces." Um, and I mean, like the original cover to the album was a close-up photograph of Pete Steele's sphincter, uh, like right. like Goatsy style, you know, with his hands like <laughs> Jesus. Um, and it was uh, the story goes that they that Roadrunner after their this is after the debut, not after their big hit, but after the debut album, Slow Deep and Hard. Roadrunner asked them to do a live album, uh, but what they did instead was. Uh, for one reason or another, sort of arrangements fell through. So what they did instead was they went into their regular studio, recorded an album pretending that it was live, complete with a fake bomb scare in the middle of the show, and like Pete Steele supposedly interacting with the audience, and then they just mixed it as if it was live and overdubbed crowd noises and people shouting and bottles being thrown and stuff like that. (laughs) 
I <laughs> love was... that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, was... like I. Well, I... but right, okay, hang on. But that alone made me laugh. But then on the back, and I think it's on the back of that album, is a photograph of them, and I, I just love this. And you'll have seen this actually if you saw the video that I posted uh, on the Facebook group of the Love You to Death single video. You'll have seen something like this where they had a photo of them all standing in a field under a tree with like as if they were playing acoustically so fair enough kenny hickey's got an acoustic guitar and uh josh silver is over there with an upright piano um and you've got uh sal at the back with his drum kit but then pete Steele is standing at the front with a double bass on a around his neck on a length of chain as if it's his bass guitar yeah <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I was just, as the minute I saw that, I was like, oh, oh, okay. The, oh, right. Now I get it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I mean, again, I hope I'm not coming across as, as being dismissive of those elements of the band. I, I found them to be very smartly done. And that's sort of what I admired about the band as I was listening to it is that everything that they're creating here is very intelligently done. And I, I, I liked that. Like, it made it more interesting to me. But yeah, I mean, Super cheesy over the top, but very well oh, done. Yeah. Well, and it's also, I think, again, much like with a band like uh, My Dying Bride, it's the thing is that it is, yes, it is cheesy and over the top, but it is also honest. Like, it's that kind of, and Type of Negative were one of the first really heavy bands to do this, to uh, sort of be willing to write songs about you know the whole emo thing now this is old hat but back in the early 90s metal bands did not talk about their feelings you know or not metal bands of men anyway uh did not talk about how actually they were kind of heartbroken because their woman had slept with some other guy and then run off or whatever you know they didn't talk about those things or certainly didn't sing about them um you know it was the closest we got to that was the hair metal era of like power ballads and girls 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 and stuff um so this was quite a new development in metal at the time and like i say the a lot of the doom metal bands the early get bands like my dying bride and stuff they sing about that stuff as well but that was all contemporary you know this this album um came out uh da -da -da, no, sorry, uh, Bloody Kisses, rather, came out um, the same year as, you know, stuff like um, My Dying Bride's Turn Is The Swans and Paradise Lost uh -huh. Icon and all that kind of era that I've talked about before. So th there was clearly something in the air. But they were one of the first bands, and especially when Pete Steele was an enormous guy. He was a huge, tall, you know, quite muscular, broad-shouldered guy. Um, very, very masculine. And he was just pouring his heart out in these lyrics. And yes, they are, like I say, sort of dramatically over the top and stuff, but there is also a really deep honesty behind them of like, you know, yeah, actually I do have emotions and I do kind of feel hurt when people betray me or, you know, uh, when my girlfriend cheats or whatever, which yeah. he wrote an 11 minute song about on their debut album, you know? <laughs> and I would take that a step further and say, because of the, humor and the sort of self-awareness that this band was not afraid to display you can actually take those moments more seriously when i see other especially like doom bands and and again not necessarily my preferred genre of metal but when bands take themselves so seriously that they can't do that to right. me it it takes away from the music whereas with these guys like i can believe that he's singing about 
you know, heartbreak. And there's certainly a couple of songs on this album where that's that's clearly evident because the fact that they can sort of joke at themselves and also, you know, wink to the audience that, that you know, uh, about the theatricality of this whole thing to me lends a sense of legitimacy to it. And so I do feel like when he when he does put it all out there, you almost believe him more because you also are able to see him playing a character at times. And so I, I like that. Right, because you know he's not like this all the time. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You, you um, almost feel like you know them a little bit more because they're not afraid to show you the side of them that can laugh at themselves, you know? Right, right. And they do laugh at themselves a lot. <laughs> I mean, like I say, the whole, you know, live album that isn't live. And uh, they used to, they refer to themselves as the Drab Four, you know, a play on the fab. Because uh, Pete Steele was huge 60s Beatle, Beatles pop music and psychedelia fan, oh. which again, you know, is quite evident throughout this quite album. Quite evident. And one yeah. of the probably, maybe the element that I like most about them is that psychedelic pop, uh, well, I think it's what made them stand out from the crowd at the time as well, you know, uh, and yep. again, especially on this album, but they did do that to an extent on the previous album as well. And that was where I discovered them with the previous album, Bloody Kisses, the big breakthrough, um, which, like I say, was released. It was a few weeks before Icon, uh, maybe like a month before Swans, but I didn't actually, and I remember reading the review of it in Kerrang, and it was a really strong review, but I didn't buy the album until a few months later when i think i was just in a local record store or something oh yeah this was that album that they you know in kerrang they said was gothic oh let's give it a try and i actually didn't like it i got it home listened to it and i was like i don't know something about it just didn't click it felt kind of aimless and not very heavy and i was just like meh no whatever um and i didn't listen to it for months but then for some reason i gave it another chance like you know three four months later and it clicked and i don't know whether maybe i was just in a really bad mood the first time i listened to it i don't know but the second time i listened i suddenly i got it and i was like oh oh no actually this is really heavy shit um and soon i was scouring record shops for you know everything else they'd done which as it turned out was not a lot at the time right um and uh, this was also around the time that i went backpacking around europe uh, in the uh, early to mid nineties, and I was gutted, absolutely gutted. I got home. <laughs> I went backpacking for a summer. I got home, uh, picked up that week's Kerrang, and found a review of a gig, a typo negative gig, supported by My Dying Bride. Oh, in, in London on the day I returned home. Like literally four days before or something. Yeah, you had just missed it. Right, it was on the day I returned home. And then, yeah, a couple of days later or whatever, I picked up Kerrang and saw a review about this gig. And I was just like, are you kidding me? (laughs) And to the best of my knowledge, they never toured together again. Um, And then you put on this album and trashed your room after you read that article. (laughs) No, that was before this album came out. Oh, okay. But but I was absolutely gutted because I was like, I mean, I've seen My Dying Bride live quite a few times and they're great live, but I never saw Typo Negative live and now I never will. Um, Because uh, as we've, uh, as we alluded to, as I said before, uh, yeah, Pete Steele, the front man, principal songwriter, lyricist, um, you know, the, the main guy around whom the rest of the band revolved died of apparent heart failure in 2010, April, yep. 2010, I think April of 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was a time where, uh, and I was trying to read more about like, what was the cause of death and stuff, but all the band members were saying that he had enjoyed a pretty stable period of sobriety when that happened. So it, it didn't seem to be 
um, because he's, he'd had his troubles in the past with substance abuse. Oh, he had abuse, a, but, lot, a lot of troubles. And I think that was the issue, was, which is why I can believe that it was heart failure quite easily because he had had, you know, yes, he may have been quite sober in, you know, sort of six months prior to his death. Right, but he'd spent 20 years being not very sober at all. Right. Um, and, yeah, I think, yeah, lots of, you know, uh, booze and drug abuse. And he even had a spell in jail at one point. Uh, towards the end and yeah just not good not good at all he was a very troubled man you know and it comes across in his music oh for sure yeah and again there's a genuineness to that stuff that i think you can you can hear through even the songs that are a little bit sort of over the top but uh a lot of interesting things uh, about them uh apparently he had a tattoo of a minus sign contained within the number zero that he originally intended to represent uh, the logo for the band Sub-Zero, but he discovered right, yeah. that another band was already using the Sub-Zero name, so he came up with Type O Negative, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, another it's thing, a, It's the, a good way of salvaging a tattoo, isn't it? It totally is, man, because Type O Negative, obviously, that, that plays very well as a band name, so I thought that was, uh, that was pretty cool. And then it says, when they signed their Roadrunner Records contract, Steele signed his recording contract with a mixture of his blood and semen. Right. I, I've never, that's always been the official line. I'm not sure whether that's actually true. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know whether that might be a bit of kind of, you know, man of war theatrics. <laughs> but in terms of the spectrum of theatricality of that band, I mean, that, you know, that's the equivalent of Kiss having comic books made with their blood in the ink and stuff like that. So right, to me, right. like that, that sort of fits in with that whole, you know, you, you've got this larger than life sort of, um, sort of legend around the band. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And Steele was, you know, very much a larger-than-life guy. He also, and this may ring a bell, if some people are sort of still scratching their heads trying to put it in context, you may recall that Pete Steele uh, posed nude in uh-huh. Playgirl, uh, notoriously off, I think it was before this album, uh, but after the massive success of Bloody Kisses, because he was a big, like I say, a big, well-built, uh, and by all accounts, well-hung dude. Yep. Um, you know, quite good-looking with long black hair, and yeah, he was, I've seen those pictures. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he was a very masculine man. <laughs> but he apparently, he claims he didn't realise he always, or claimed, sorry, uh, keep talking about him in the present tense. Uh, he always claimed that he had no idea until Kenny Hickey, the guitarist in Typo Negative, basically like pointed out to him a year or so later, like, you do know that it's mostly guys, mostly gay guys who read Playgirl. It's not women. And he still was horrified, apparently, at this uh, news. Um, so, you know, take that as you will. <laughs> Yeah, I remember reading in in because I looked up some of the interviews, and I'll just pull. I, I pulled a couple quotes from. Uh, I tried to find interviews around the time that this album came out. Um, let's see. So one of the things they talk about is the cover of that they do of Cinnamon Girl, and someone asked him, "You picked a few '70s tunes to cover on the last two albums, Neil Young, Cinnamon Girl, and Seals and Crofts, Summer Breeze. How do they fit in?" And his response was, "Both songs are only four chords, which is all we know." So those are obvious choices. (laughs) And that's Um, exactly the kind of self-deprecating humor that I loved about Typo. (laughs) But when you listen to their music, like they do do a lot of simple um, sort of basic rhythm lines. But when you layer in the keyboards and when you layer in some of the strings and things like that, like they, it, to me, that's where where I really started to appreciate their composition is because the, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. You know what I mean? Like that. Absolutely. And I think that's where he really showed a lot of sort of creative genius. Um, 
And uh, to, to sort of segue into that, they say, so you use a lot of lush instrumentation to lather each track. And he says, reverb drowns out all the errors. He says, what people think is goth and genius in depth is just layers of mistakes. The reason we cover those songs uh, is because being born in 1962 with five older sisters, each with their own stereo, I was always subjected to different music. The light sounds of the 60s and 70s became some childhood favorites. When you hear these songs on the radio, I think of fond memories and good times like Frank Sinatra, I want to do it my way. So I thought that was interesting as well. So again, self-deprecating, but uh, he's sort of saying that they they sort of they have layers and layers to their tracks because it sort of covers up any errors that they might have made. Right, which is uh, ties into one of their, and I think this actually might be in the, I haven't, I'd have to open the booklet uh, to check, but I think in the booklet for October Rust is the band photo is captioned with the slogan, uh, don't mistake lack of talent for genius. Right. <laughs> which, <laughs> Again, just like crack me off. I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> because again, they like, are, you know, they really were good, great songwriters. And yeah, I think that's the thing. They may not, they genuinely may not have been the most technically accomplished musicians, uh-huh. but their ability, well, his ability to write songs and their ability to perform those songs that he wrote was just, you know, sublime. I totally agree. Like I, I and, and, and I really do have a great appreciation for like their composition like it just the way the songs come together if you took each individual part it it might not blow you away but when you put them all together like they they really do have songs that stay with you yeah absolutely all right so uh let's get on to the album itself so uh the details it has 15 tracks technically and runs for 73 minutes which was uh at the time was pretty much the limit of cd running time as i recall um, yes. And I, I think the only album longer than this that we've covered is Santanga. <laughs> Other than that, I think this is the longest album that we've done. But it should be said that three of those 15 tracks at the start and end are skits, short skits. And one of them in the middle is also a one minute instrumental. So really, it's only 11 actual songs. Yeah, and while while this album is nowhere near as self-indulgent as St. Anger, there are a couple of songs on this album that I feel like um, kind of overstayed their welcome a little bit. But we'll talk about those as we sure, go through. Yeah. But yeah, yeah the, the longest song here is just over 10 minutes. Uh, the shortest, apart from that instrumental, the shortest is 3 minutes 46. And that was the single. The advanced single from the album uh, was, you know, the shortest track. Makes sense. Um, because previously they had always had to cut and edit songs down to get them to single length to get them to play on the radio. Sure. So, you know, that that particular song, um, which was My Girlfriend's Girlfriend, which we'll, we'll talk about when we come to it in the album, but they wrote that to be a single. So they wrote it to be under four minutes uh-huh. so that they, they wouldn't have to fuck around with it to get it played on the radio. <laughs> uh, so that was, you know, quite sensible. So... I remember there was a lot of anticipation about this album because Bloody Kisses had been so successful and had really, like I say, just launched them into the stratosphere. I remember there were stories about Roadrunner basically pointing at, you know, a lot of other bands feeling bad because Roadrunner were pointing at Typo Negative and going, why can't you do that? Why right. can't you sell as many units as they do? Um, they had they were the biggest band on the label. They had broken through into mass awareness. As I say, they'd spent two years touring, being on MTV, 
they'd done the whole Playgirl thing. Uh, Pete Steele appeared on Howard Stern several times as well. He was a not a regular guest, but you know he was known as a as, you know it wasn't a surprise to find him on Howard Stern. Sure. Um, so they were you know very well known, and it's like I say, a lot of anticipation therefore for the follow up to Bloody Kisses, and. And then it came out, and immediately, immediately, people started shouting sellout. Because production-wise, it sounds almost nothing like Bloody Kisses. Bloody Kisses is a really stark, echoey, uh, you know, sort of distorted album. Uh-huh. And this is not, <laughs> you know. This is really lush with, uh, like, 64-track studio, uh, massive budget. They took months to record it. Um you know, because they could, uh, and because they had the money and the time to do this. And so, yeah. And then people immediately start selling, uh, shouting sellout. Um, these which eventually happens to everybody, ban- everybody over the course of their career. But, uh, these guys got it, you know, right with this follow up album pretty early. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same as, you know, has happened with paradise lost with one second, my dying bride with 37.88%. Um, you know, they, these bands cannot win. Uh, they, they sort of, Unless they become Motorhead and just more or less, or Slayer, and more or, or less put ACDC, out the same yep. album every time. Right, yeah. You know, then they, they just can't win. And of course, if they do that, then they get accused of, of never evolving. So Right, well, you, you just do- name the three bands that got away with that for an entire career. So think of all the other bands that couldn't get Did, away with th- that. Didn't, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and a lot of hair bands actually fell into that sort of uh, problem, didn't they? Where they couldn't escape from that genre oh absolutely and we'll definitely talk about that but when you but the thing one of the things that i loved about the 80s when it came to hair metal and all that is like everybody had an amazing first album and right, right. about 80 percent of those bands dropped off the face of the earth with their second album because the second <laughs> album was nowhere near you know what they because most of those bands had earned whether it was on the strip or whatever had been trying to get a record contract for 10 years by the time that they first debuted and so you got what was a, amounted to a greatest hits album as their first album and then right. by the time they had to follow that up you know a lot of them dropped off and then a lot of them got caught in the late 80s early 90s with with that genre fading and couldn't get out you know couldn't get out of their uh, what they'd already been typecast as right well and yeah right you you're absolutely right that those bands effectively had 10 years to write their debut album yep. and then they've suddenly got like one year to write the second album exactly so, of course. And that didn't happen. And it's one of the good things about this. This took three years. I mean, two two of those years were spent touring, sure. But as we all know, you know, most bands, while they're touring, start, you know, putting material together for the follow-up album. Uh, Bloody Kisses was 93. And this was almost three years to the day um, after that album. Uh, and Bloody Kisses had been like, you know, only two years after their debut, if that. Uh, well, and they started in 1989, right, as a band. So they hadn't right. even been yeah. around that long to to have, you know, done done what all, you know, a lot of those 80s bands had done. Right. Well, and they were only signed in 91, yeah. So, right. uh, so yeah, they were still a relatively young band at this point. Um, but they did have three years they took to write this album. They'd had, they'd lost a drummer. Uh, the, the original drummer, Sal Abrascato, Abrascato, I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, quit to join, form, Life of Agony, one of the two. Um, who I saw in uh, concert a long time ago. <laughs> oh, right. Well, you probably saw Sal playing with them then. Yeah. And he was the original drummer in Type of Negative. So his drum tech, Johnny Kelly, got promoted basically to drummer, uh, you know, keep it in the family. Which happens um, all the time. I mean, how, how often do yeah, we see the yeah. drum techs that take over as the drummer? 
Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, you know, really, really good drama. However, uh, there is an eternal controversy surrounding Typo about this. Like, there is no question that up until the first two albums, no question that Sal was playing the drums. Um, frankly, you can tell because, you know, they ain't a million bucks. Um, so no argument there. This album onwards, nobody knows for sure whether Johnny Kelly actually drummed on the albums or whether this is a drum machine. Huh. Uh, you're right. It, because if it is a drum machine, it's an incredibly well-programmed yeah. drum machine. That never like, occurred to me one time while listening to this album. Right. And it didn't to me when I first, you know, heard, but I became aware of this controversy a few years ago. And now if you listen to it with that knowledge, you'd be like, actually that could be a drum machine. It's really hard. And even the band like said different, when people would ask them about this, gave different answers, you know? Um, uh, I remember there was, I can't remember who said what exactly, but you know, things like at the one minute they'd say, Oh yeah, we had to program them because you can't play this slowly with accurate timing. That's really difficult. And so it's Uh just more, more efficient to program drums. Uh, But then you'd have them saying, Oh no, 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 no. The, the sounds are triggered, but the drumming, that's all Johnny. Um, it, and so many contradictory statements. So who knows? Only the band know for sure. But again, very much in line with the whole kind of rumors and legend that surround this band that they seem to constantly feed into in the interviews that I read and things like that. They liked to keep people guessing about they really like to screw with the media yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah Yeah, that was clear in a lot of the interviews that i read is that they they very much uh not that they had a disdain for the media but definitely liked to play with them a little bit right well it's like it's that attitude of like look you know we've made a record judge us by the record there all of this stuff all of the hype and the publicity and doing the interviews and stuff whatever you know that's not important so we're just going to have some fun with it if you want to know what we are really about just listen to the goddamn record but right. of course it's you like can't. when you see uh, some actors that have to do a press junket for a movie that's coming out and they literally do 50 interviews in one day and they just uh, ferry yeah. in like every single you know oh, yeah, reporter from are, every news sat outlet in a hotel room yeah exactly. and people are on a production line and they ask them the same through. freaking questions all day, yeah. all they're doing is answering the same. I'm sure you've gone through that where you've been, been doing, you know, interviews for a new book coming out or, or one of the comics that you're working on and you are just getting the same questions all the time. So it's good to see them have fun with that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've done that to a much, much lesser extent than, you know, a band like this or a, some Hollywood actor. But yeah, I have done that for video games mostly, actually, because, you know, those tend to generate the most press. Right. And yeah, you have like 10 people lining up. And they all ask you the same questions. This is what, one of the reasons why, well, firstly, when you get somebody who asks you a question that you've never been asked before, you yep. kind of jump on it and mm-hmm. you're like, thank God, you know, and <laughs> that's probably going to be your best interview. But also totally understandable why so many uh, musicians and actors just eventually start screwing around with the press. Yep. And it's Absolutely. not because they hate the press, but because they're bored. They're so bored. Yeah, and it sucks for the press in a lot of ways, too, because then, you know, the the outlet that they're working for is expecting them to get certain tidbits of information. Yep. And so they, yep. they always have the standard stock list of questions that they're supposed to ask. But I think the good ones, you know, or the ones that are most interesting to read are the ones that, as you said, will mix in some questions that maybe the person hasn't heard before or lets them sort of elaborate instead of giving the same, you know, stock answer that they've given to the other 17 outlets that interviewed them today. 
Right, exactly. Um, anyway, a slight digression, but yes. so, but it, it is. It all kind of you know feeds into appreciating this band, I think, because as like I say, they were one of the first bands of this sort of genre. C- certainly not the first rock band or metal band, but one of the first bands of a really kind of you know fairly hardcore nature uh, to get that sort of press attention, um, and because they were such a tight knit unit. Like I say, they're like the original members. They all grew up together, literally from school children. Johnny Kelly, I'm not so sure about, but, uh, you know, I, he'd certainly been working with the band long enough as Sal's drum tech that, yeah, you know, they were a really tight knit unit. So, uh, it's understandable that they kind of circled the wagons a little bit when that massive amount of attention, you know, suddenly hit them in the wake of bloody kisses. Um, but the, going back to the, the sound, the lush production on this album is one of the reasons that I love it so much because it doesn't sound like any of their other albums. Like all of their other albums are much more stripped back into just in terms of the sound and literally the sonic quality. This was the only album where they really went all out for that kind of lush wall of sound, 50 acoustic guitars, all multi-tracked over right. the top of one another kind of sound. Um, and, and we talk a lot about, albums that reward multiple listens and for me especially oh, oh, with yeah. bands that i'm sort of just discovering or an album that i've never heard before like because i like to spend a lot of time with the album like i really appreciate albums that do have the type of layering that this one has because it you're recognizing something new every time you listen to it right and that really is the case with this album i mean again you will get that to an extent with all of their albums um partly because of josh silver's keyboard playing which is so amazing. Lo- right. But also, uh, you know, oftentimes very, very low in the mix. And you I just agree. don't yep. notice it until you've listened to it five or six times. Um, yeah, there's always something new to discover. And without that lush production, they couldn't have made some of the tracks on this album. You just, you know, some of them rely on that lush multi-tracking. Um, I feel like and- when you're, yeah, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, and some of those are some of my favorite tracks that they ever made. So like I say, that's why I love that they did that for this album. And I feel like with with uh, this genre and also the sort of subject matter that Typo Negative is putting into their songs, like you have to create a sense of atmosphere. And so yeah. I do feel like this type of production is almost necessary to creating that level of atmosphere. Because I, the way I felt as I listened to to a lot of these songs is that they sort of want to immerse you in the song. They're trying to immerse you in the images that they're evoking in the, you know, the lyrics. It all works together in a way that is is sort of very dreamy and um, and you just dreamy sort of get, is a good way of putting it. Yeah, and you it. just yeah. sort of get lost in it. And I think that in order to create that effect, having those layers draws you in in a way that if they had just stripped it back, I don't think it would be as immersive. Right. No, absolutely. And yeah, if you do go and listen to other typo stuff after this as a result, you'll see that difference. And not that their other albums aren't immersive in other ways, but yeah, as I say, they're all so different sonically to this album that it's quite a contrast. Do you know what it reminded me of? I was thinking about it and it reminded me of Ghost. Oh, okay, yeah. Who, who I think you know them over there as Ghost AD or something. Um, I just think of them as Ghost, but that's another band that I've only recently discovered and kind of dipped my toe into. Right. If you listen... If you hear Ghost without listening to the lyrics, just from the sonic point, you'd just go, oh, this is nice. It's sort of like, you know, sort of hard rock, 
groovy music. Right. This is very this is very pleasant. And then of course you actually look at what the, the lyrics and you're like, holy shit. And you're like, oh, uh, I just a part of my soul just left my body. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um which I love. Again, I you know, I absolutely love that about Ghost. Um but that's again, I think they kind of do that on this album as well. Like a lot of the parts of this album, especially that middle, the lush suite uh middle section as I like to call it. Uh-huh. Um is kind of upbeat in places and the music is kind of you could listen to it and go oh this is this is sort of nice hard rock music you uh-huh. know uh, and then yeah if again if you look at the lyrics and listen to what p steel is actually singing you're like oh wow this is some dark shit going on here it's funny you mentioned that because i the last thing that i usually do when i make notes for an episode of this show is look at the lyrics so i've heard them as i've listened to the album you know several times or whatever but when i sit down to write my notes, I like to pull up the lyrics because I like to pull out ones that really jump out at me. And it was in reading through those lyrics that some of the songs registered with me in a way that they hadn't before. So yeah, I totally agree with you. And I made a note, I don't know which song it was on, about how, wow, this song really turns into sort of an upbeat feel, but the lyrics don't necessarily match that at all. So yeah, that's definitely a (laughs) contrast that I noticed as I was going through. Yeah. Uh, And the last thing I'll say before we get onto the individual tracks is that uh, one thing I must confess, this is kind of a breakup album for me. Um, I had just gone through, I don't want to say traumatic because that's overplaying it, but you know, a fairly, a fairly serious relationship breakup when this album came out. Um, And I mean, I I loved it anyway. And I've, I've always been in the habit with bands like Paradise Lost, Modern Ride and type of negative where I will, I'll get the album and then I'll just listen to it on repeat again and again and again, you know, until it's kind of locked in my head. Uh So I did that anyway, but at the same time, I was also a lot of the time doing it at night, driving alone in the dark, Uh uh, feeling really sorry for myself. Uh Yeah. It's good music (laughs) for wallowing. Oh, it really is. It really is. And I admit that that may have had, a big influence on why I love this album in particular so much because yeah, if you are, as you say, looking for something to wallow in, this album will really do it for you. Well, and it's, it's that, uh, I think for all of us as, you know, metal fans and music fans in general, you have that sort of quote unquote soundtrack to your life that you could put, you know, 20 albums or 30 albums or whatever that you can have defined moments that are attached to. And those are usually the albums that you, continue to revisit for the rest of your life, whether they were good memories or bad memories, because they are just sort of, it is the soundtrack of your life. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So let's get on to the uh, actual tracks then. So it starts, tracks one and two, there's no there's no point even going through them individually. Uh, track one is called Bad Ground and track two is Untitled. <laughs> Yeah, on. Hey, we hope you enjoyed our little joke there. This is Peter. This is Johnny. Kenny. And Josh. And, uh, you know, they're just a joke. Uh-huh. Um, it's, you get the sound of, well, of a bad ground uh, on, a, on, a, on an amplifier, and then you get the band, frankly, sounding like they're already quite high. Yes. Uh, <laughs> like laughing and giggling and introducing the Making album. chicken noises in the background as they're, yeah. you know, saying, you know, thanks for picking up this album. We we spent a few months getting high and working on it for you. Yeah, yeah. And you get the feeling that they really did. Um, this was the first album where they started to do this. Uh, and then it became a feature. 
it, it became something that they did on, I think, all of their albums from this onwards, or certainly the next couple. Um, for example, the, the album after this, World Coming Down, uh, I'm pretty sure it's that one, is uh, the first track is the sound of a CD skipping. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that sound that a CD makes, uh, followed by someone shouting suckers. Nice. And then the first song starts. <laughs> but it endears the band, I think, to the listeners, because again, it, it sort of gives you, it draws you in a little bit, you know, like you, like yeah. these are real people. And, and I, I can totally see how that would bring them closer to their fans for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, so it, then it goes into the first proper song, which is track three, love you to death. favorite songs on the album i love the album over you know completely anyway but i absolutely love this song such a gothic start to the album um the track itself they get the piano intro and as we've said about so many other first tracks and albums a real showcase of this is what you can expect from this album um and for i remember at the time you know having listened bought you know to their first three albums, bought all their previous stuff, listened to their first three albums over and over and over again. And then listening to this for the first time being really like, Whoa, this, this is different. This does not sound like their other stuff, you know? Well, and it's, it's such an interesting, you know, cause the, uh, the last track was them goofing off and, uh, and sort of making jokes. And it almost feels like they went in the back room, put their, you know, put their costumes on, got their instruments, came back out. <laughs> and, 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 and I will also say to agree with you, this is one of my favorite tracks on the album, but it has that feel almost like of a Dracula lounge act. This is where you realize that, <laughs> oh, this guy's rolling his R's, uh, you know, he's, he's Strad von Zarevich and, uh, and, and that can be a bit jarring at first, but it really sort of lets you know what you're in for with this album is that it's good. It, it, it to me, it sort of encapsulates everything that you can expect from this album, which is what a great opening song should do, because you you are getting yep. a the sort of over the top 
uh, almost caricature-like presentation of some aspects of it, but you're also getting those you know, doom and gloomy lyrics, and you're also getting the layered in keyboards. And so it kind of all gives you a good idea of like, buckle up, this is what your ride is going to be like for the rest of the album. Yeah, uh, the fact that it's seven minutes long is also a part of that. Um, yeah, I mean, it showcases that Pete can actually sing as well. Oh, for uh, sure. Right, well, but that's on their previous albums, not so much. You know, doesn't do an awful lot of singing. Mostly it's just kind of angry shouting. But I um, feel like, um, and you can tell me if this is true or not, like as I listen to this album, I'm like, oh, people must have loved the way that these guys like just dripped sex as they oh god yeah yeah you know what i mean like i i totally see that as like they're that's such a big part of their allure is that this was to me again this it feels like a band that people just love to have sex to you know what i mean like this was the thing that was on in the background you know when when the candles are set around the room and uh the black candles and you know (laughs) but but to me like that just seemed like such a big part of their allure is the the whole rolling of the r's the whole sort of dracula presentation and stuff was what just adds that layer of like seduction to it It, it's sensual yeah oh very much so yeah i'm pretty sure i recall pete Steele saying at one point that they and who knows, you can never be sure whether he was joking uh, with stuff that he said in interviews, but he said that this album was deliberately kind of the idea was we want more female fans. We want to get more women into this band. Um, and tracks like this and the one afterwards really, you know, really hit that target market, I think. Oh, for um, sure. Like I said, they were one of the first bands of this oeuvre to really sort of have the emotional lyrical content. Um, but also that the the helpless, tragic, gothic romance stuff, you know, I don't mean to stereotype, but I know a lot of female metal fans who love that stuff. It's one of the reasons why My Dying Bride has such a huge female following sure. as well. You know, they absolutely love that stuff. And you don't get it from a lot of traditional metal bands. Right, so because it's just about death. <laughs> you know, right, like, like right. there's a lot Without of bands the who when they, they get into these subject matters, it's just the death part and it's not right. the romance part. And so melding those together, I think absolutely opens them up to a, a much more diverse audience than they might otherwise get. Yeah, absolutely. And you, uh, th- there's uh, an unusual song structure in here as well, which kind of... Uh, the more you listen to typo, the more you sort of realize that they do this a lot, but it's, it is still unusual, which is you've got, this song has an intro, two verses followed by two choruses, then a short bridge, and then a final coda that doesn't sound anything like the rest of the song. Yeah. Like you, you never hear the chorus again. It's really, and it's the seven minute song. It's really unusual. Um, you get sudden changes in key. Yeah. You get sort of different movements within a song. Um, you know, and like I said, the more you listen to them, the more you realize that, that this is a big part of how uh, Pete Steele composed songs. But when, you, when you're when you new to it, it can be a bit like, whoa, what happened there? Where are we going? Yeah, I mean, I would say my first gut instinct was that this song should have ended at sort of the five-minute mark where you have them sort of singing Love You to Death, and it's just it's just them singing. You know, the music kind of drops out and you could almost fade it out at that point and have that be the end of the song. And then, you know, as you mentioned, the song completely changes after that. The more I listen to it, though, because this is one of my favorite songs on the album, I appreciate the whole package. And I really 
you know, we mentioned the keyboards before, but I really love the way in the second verse, those sort of 60s psychedelic keyboards sort of come in and they have this sort of rolling, you know, circular uh, sort of melody to them that I really I think yeah. just locks the song in. Like I, like, I liked how it began, but that, I think that's what made it one of my favorite songs on the album. I was like, oh, I really like that. Right. And again, yeah, you may not notice that on your first, second, even third listen through. That was one of the things that, uh, that really sort of hit me when I, when I did finally get into Bloody Kisses and was sort of going back and listening to it again. Cause when I first listened to it, I was like, well, there's a keyboard player, but there are no keyboards on this album. What's right. going on? <laughs> You're like, what's he doing? Um, and I mean, firstly, actually, Josh Silver basically was their producer. Uh Um, he pretty much produced the band, you know, throughout their whole career. So he was doing something regardless, but also, yeah, when you listen to it again, you can then, if you, especially on headphones, you listen again properly and sort of dive through the layers of the song. Oh, there's the keyboard. And you find that it's, it's a bed. It's the foundation. It is. Of the whole song is just holding it together with these lovely keyboard chords. And that whole 60s psychedelic, you know, keyboard vibe to me, that is, when used properly, is such a great element. And there's a there's a handful of songs on this album that they use it to great effect on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can really, again, setting out the store for the album, you can really see the sort of psychedelic and Beatles influence on this song. And that permeates throughout the whole album. Yeah, this um, is a great example of the song being sort of um, greater than the the... You know, the whole is, is greater than the sum of its parts there because uh, it all comes together in a, a nice package, even though it, it is a long song, but one of my favorites on the album. Yeah, me too. I mean, I love long songs anyway. Everybody knows that, but yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then it uh, we get that lovely sort of atmospheric um, chorus-tinged guitar fade out uh, with a bit of wind howling uh, into track four, Be My Druidess. has sort of a michael jackson beat it intro you know, you have, <laughs> i'd never thought of it like that <laughs> that whole you know i kept i kept what like the, every time it comes on the first time i hear it I, is it going to be beat it or is it going to be be my druidist like it could go either way um what but again that- this is a song where i feel like the the you see the way that his bass playing sort of drives oh yeah y- you know the composition of each song 
Yeah, the bass riff intro on this and the Great. way the snare drums kick in is just, you know, is wonderful. Um, also, the very, very start of this song where you get the feedback uh, and the sort of the, the strange pick noises and things, that's something that, again, Typo do a lot. And you, even on their earlier albums, they don't clean up feedback or i mean who knows maybe they even deliberately got a bit of feedback sampled it and then stuck it at the start of the song it's hard to tell and i um, really like the pick sounds that's yeah, something too. i like in in uh music because again like you said it, it just feel it gives it that uh it just makes it feel more genuine to me yeah it gives it an energy i think like you can tell um, someone's playing it and that's right. <laughs> what i like about yeah. that like you know what i mean like it feels like someone is playing it and they're not playing the whole song on a computer it feels like an instrument is right. being played and i like that there's a physicality yeah. to it that i think lends well to their whole persona which is very you know as we talked about with this with the with the seductive lyrics and things like that there there's a physicality to their music that i think this is one layer of yeah absolutely Absolutely. And yes, the bass does just drive the whole song, really. And it's quite groovy as well. It's like, you know, it's a good oh, for moving sure. song. Um, Almost hypnotic, this- like the 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 sort of um, the way the guitar is, you know, layered over that bass line has almost like a hypnotic right feel to it, which it I, swirls, which I kinda like. It doesn't does, it? It's, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. They, and that's kind of a common element in their song, that sort of circular swirling sort of feeling vibe that you get from the songs which i which i really liked about them although this is the first song and i don't know people might freak out when when i say this but when i listen to this band i hear a lot of duran duran like a <laughs> lot of duran duran and i couldn't get it out of my head and this was one of those songs that and and i i mean that i love duran duran like love them um they I were i don't know whether i'd say duran duran but they are their songwriting, still songwriting, despite having songs that are seven or eight minutes long, is very pop-influenced. I'm going to name uh, two songs that I, I think people should check out from Duran Duran that I think made me, um, that just makes me think of this a little bit, that I think are some parallels. So one is Ordinary World from Duran Duran, but the other one that I feel like really makes me think about Typo Negative is Come Undone. Come Undone is a very sort of gloomy song from duran duran you you could find the video on youtube we'll put a link to it in the show notes but come undone is a song to me that it just kept popping in my head as i listened to the more i don't want to say poppy elements but the, the certain elements of of uh typo negative made me think of that and i i'm a huge duran duran fan so that's a compliment like i right no, I, I really don't think like there's that. anything wrong with saying pop elements because, like I say, his songwriting, and Pete Steele was always very open about this, like he loved 60s pop and his songwriting was clearly very heavily influenced by that. And he would joke and, you know, call them like a failed pop band and, and stuff. Um, but it's fairly clear, you know, quite quickly, as soon as you sort of listen to whole albums of their stuff especially, that that was a big influence on his songwriting. So sure. I don't think that's, I don't think it's wrong to say that at all. No, because they take that and then they turn it into something else, which is, I, right. I think is awesome, but you can still hear those Just influences, like cover which versions. is, yeah, exactly. Which is awesome. Yeah. So, uh, and of course, from a lyrical standpoint, like this, this song has some pretty explicit imagery associated with it. Right. You've got this worship stuff. It starts off like, you know, be my druidess. Incidentally, this was the song. Uh, I think I mentioned this before on a previous episode where, 
uh, Josh Silver got pissed off with Phil Anselmo on MTV because I think they were about to play it. And Phil was just kind of, he had the mic and he was blustering and he was, he was just like, be my druidess. Like, what the fuck? And Justin was like, well, fuck you, Phil. This is, you know, right. <laughs> this, this is our music. And that someone was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I love it. I just think it's fucking outrageous. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's so, it, it is, this is, it's so, be my druidess. I mean, come on, oh, you know, it dude. is so gothic. Long uh, fingernails dug in my skin. Yourself so wet invites me in. I'll do anything <laughs> to make you come. Like, you're right. Yeah. But again, <laughs> uh, if you are into the seductive side of this band, like, holy crap, like, this is the, this is the jackpot. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah, there, and yeah. there are lines like this in every single song. And so it, it, it just drips with this erotic imagery throughout the entire album. And, yeah. uh, which, which of course meshes perfectly with the rolling of the R's and the, you know, vampiric presentation and stuff like that. I, I really, uh, it's one of those things where you smirk when you hear it. But they're very smart about how they layer that stuff in to the songs. And it doesn't take anything away from the song sonically. Right, right. Yeah, Pete was, you know, that was his thing. He wrote really good, sensual, uh, you know, emotional lyrics. And they were quite explicit at at times, but, you know. (laughs) And just the way that when they repeat that line of the chorus the second time around and he leaves out the word come, the anticipation of that is all part of the presentation like that. Very, very smartly, again, the composition of everything working together, it's one of those songs where you have to appreciate that. Yep, absolutely. Um, uh, And then, right, so again, this one ends on a sort of a bit of a whistle, you know, maybe a howl of wind, um, uh, and into track five, which is Green Man. one starts with uh peter's lovely the first time we really hear it on this album properly his lovely deep like ultra baritone i think it's probably fair to say bass oh sure yeah absolutely Um, uh but not not just speaking but you know like singing as well uh and a bit of acoustic guitar and it's i don't know it, it it has I mean, it's called green man for heaven's sake and it has a real sort of almost folky feel to it at first like the first 30 seconds before the rest of it kicks in. 
Right. And it's really successful in that, I think. I wrote, I made a note at one minute and 20 seconds when it kicks in with the, you know, with, with the heaviness, that is a really powerful moment. Yeah, it really is. Uh, although my, I mean, I like the song overall. My favorite part of it actually is um, the bridge, which kicks in around two minutes 45, where you get the, uh, this ominous bass note and layered sounds, again, layers, the strings, backmast vocals, and you get percussive shouts and pick slides. Uh-huh. I think there might, might even be like a howling wind effect from Josh in there in the background. Right. And, and, it all, and then it all builds up into, uh, you know, this, the big release and into, uh, I think that goes into the chorus. And yeah, I just, uh, before then going back to the bridge, and I love that, that build up again, anticipation, as you said, that build up that they have, they are so good. At that, about- Two things about this song, too, that stung out, uh, stuck out at me. One, this was uh, the one that made me think a little bit of Ordinary World from Duran Duran. And this was right. one of those songs that had a bit of an uplifting vibe to part of it, where it didn't necessarily match. Not that these lyrics are super dark, because it's about the changing of the seasons and stuff like that, and the, and the cycle of, of that kind of stuff. But uh, that it almost plays a little more upbeat and poppy than it actually is. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, also this is a good example. And again, you'll have seen this throughout this album, but it's actually more pronounced on several of their other albums. If you listen to them, um, Pete Steele's idiosyncratic vocal style, shall we say? Um, yes, he rolls uh, yeah, his that's ass, a good way of putting it, but he also, he really, he enunciates syllables and phrases in a really strange way to fit a rhythm. And it's not necessarily even the same rhythm as the music, but this, you know, it, it clearly has a rhythm set out, like I'm going to sing the lyrics in this way before he writes the lyrics, or at least right. I think, I assume that's what happened. And Almost so, like he hums or, or uh, right. you know, through what the rhythm is going to sound like or the melody. Right. Which a lot of vocalists do. Uh, if you listen to, uh, I don't know about now, but certainly back when they were doing the Black Album um, on some of their singles, Metallica released demo versions, like literally the, uh, the stuff they'd record in Lars's basement um, of early versions of tracks. And James is literally going, nah, 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 nah. It's, you know, lots of lyricists do that. Right. Um, but, but then they also, you know, will change things according to the words they write. And it seemed like Pete Steele didn't do that. <laughs> and so you get some really odd pronunciations and, really long syllables and then like a brief second syllable at the end where you think, yeah. wouldn't yeah. it his be cadence, easier? You know? Yeah, his cadence can be all over the place, but it but it feels like it's all intentional. Oh, absolutely. And again, it makes them, nobody else does it. It doesn't sound like anybody else. So it certainly makes them stand out, makes them, you know, emphasizes their individuality. Yeah, his voice is, of what I little I knew of typo negative, his voice is typo negative. Like that, that immediately, oh, yeah, yeah. like if you said, oh, what's type of, oh, that's the baritone guy. Like that's the, that's the guy who sounds yeah. like a vampire. Like that, that's the first <laughs> thing that would jump into my mind. If you asked me who typo negative was, right. um, yeah, but yeah. So, 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 but what I think is interesting about that is that because his voice is so recognizable and it's such a powerful element of what they do, kudos to them for not letting it overpower the music itself because that right. his voice alone is an element that could and we see that all the time with you know we talk about king diamond for example like king diamond 
um, a lot of times his his voice just overpowers everything else. And so the balance that they strike in typo negative where he is one of many elements of yep, the song yep. overall compositionally that comes together, like that balance is a difficult one to keep when you have a voice like his. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that's where, again, the value of them all being old friends, having grown up together, you can't bullshit people that you grew up with, you know, people who remember you from your pubescent years or whatever you can't bullshit people like that and so i think having uh that sort of relationship with essentially your producer like i say josh silver basically produced you know all of their albums sometimes working with other people sometimes working with pete Steele, but he was always there and if the producer's saying do you know what let's turn your voice down here yes. a bit it's yes. you know you've got to be have a, a relationship good enough strong enough for you know, people not to piss one another off too much when you do that sort of thing, and for egos not to get too much in the way. I mean, I don't think there's any question that I don't think anybody would deny Pete Steele had quite an ego. Sure, but then you know what musician doesn't? <laughs> but the music itself feels very unselfish in the way yes, that it comes yes. together. And you mentioned the keyboard player is the producer, and yet the keyboards are often the farthest so thing back in the, in mix. the mix. Yeah, and so yeah. he's not. He's not taking advantage of his role as the producer to showcase his playing. He's doing what needs to be done in service to the song. And I feel like they maintain that balance, at least through this album, in every song. Yes, and in all their other albums. You're so right. That's exactly, yeah, that sort of, it would be so easy and so sort of expected for somebody in that position to make sure that you could hear every single hit of the keyboard. You know, right. It's like when we joke note. about like in, in eighties metal, you know, the bass player is often, you don't even know that there's a bass player on the album, right? right because right. it's all about the guitars because the eighties were all about the guitars. And so it, 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 it's nice to hear a band where everybody gets their just due and whatever is being done is in service to the overall song. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and this uh, this song is the first on the album, although this is a very common typo thing, and we see it a lot more throughout this album and on other albums as well. But this is the first track on the album also that doesn't... It doesn't have a natural end, but it also doesn't fade out. Uh, and they just cut it. Right. They just have a hard cut, just, uh, that's the end of the song. <laughs> Which, as I say, is actually quite a common typo thing. But uh, And as a result, there are no gaps between any of the songs. Either the song fades out, and the second it fades out, the next song starts. Or it has a proper end, and then the next song starts immediately. Or, yeah, they just cut it. Just like, okay, that's enough of that. Right. Into the next or, song. Or there's some sort of sound effect that's carrying you from one song into the other. Right, or a bit of feedback or something. Right, yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, and that's what this one does. It just cuts straight into track six, which is Red Water Christmas Morning.
I think is the most doomish song on the album. It's not far off, is it? Uh, I would disagree, but it's certainly up there. It's one of my favorites, actually, on this album. I love it. Uh, I often trot this song out uh, at Christmas and, sure. like, you know, sort of <laughs> post a, yeah, what a better link way to, to celebrate the video the on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the lyrics on this song are some of the most tragic lyrics that Peter ever wrote, I think. And the the chords, the melody, the whole musical structure of it is so melancholy, such a sense of sadness. Yes, um, and I love the way the use of God Resty Merry Gentlemen, you know, oh. <laughs> I love the way that it is layered into the song. Um, yeah. And you, it is super dope. Talk about music for wallowing. Like, if you just want to... If if you just want to stay down in the dumps, like this is a good song to sort of just loop, right? You know, right. And keep yourself there, but it's but it is, it's a fantastic song. I really love well, it. And here's the thing: what I get, I mean, it, like I say, incredibly sad, yes, but I get musically, not just lyrically, but musically, I get a sense from this of the impression of like trying to put a, on a brave face, yes, over the sadness, and I can't. I can't explain how the music alone can possibly get that across to me, but that is, that's always, you know, been there when I'm listening to this song, it feels like musically it's representing that feeling of, yeah, you know, I'm really, really down, but I'm trying to make the best of it. I'm trying to appear. Okay. And also Uh, like that gritted teeth resentment over whatever the, whatever the thing is that that is the reason that you're down you know because like with the lyrics says my table's been set for seven last year i dined with 11 god damn ye merry gentlemen so there's that rueful sort of like i am i'm i'm going to continue forward but that's right below the surface sort of thing you know and i i feel like the music and the lyrics work together well to paint this picture of someone who like you said is putting on a brave face and kind of soldiering forth but at the same time that that simmering resentment toward whatever the incident was that resulted in their loss. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, um, you just picked out my favorite lyrics. I mean, again, I, I love this song overall, but those lyrics, yeah, my, the table's been set for but seven. Just last year I dined with 11. God damn you, Mary Gentleman. And that's when it goes into the God rest you, Mary Gentleman bit. Because um, that's a pretty stark image that it conjures in your head, right? Uh, really is. Really is. Yeah. But I love. Again, yeah, what a great set of lyrics. You know, this, yeah, this idea that four people that he knows have died in the course of a year, you know. Um, And I remember, not necessarily around the time of this album, but I remember reading interviews with Pete Steele talking about that sort of thing. Like saying, like, you know, I've lost half a dozen close friends have all died in the last year because of drug abuse or AIDS or whatever. Um, You know, this guy was had a pretty shitty uh, run at that sort of thing. So... Yeah, and this song just gets it across so well. Right, and because it, it's a time of year where you are coming together with people that right. maybe you haven't seen, or you know, it's the time for reunions, and it's the time for celebrating what the last year has brought. So and you notice the absence, yeah. exactly. So that yeah. you're you're faced you're face to face with the loss of and, the people close to you. And red water, of course, you know, could be wine or it could be blood. Uh, you know, lovely imagery there. Um, sure, but amidst all this sadness. All this sadness, you get the God rest you, merry gentlemen phrasing, and then the song comes back in with fucking sleigh bells. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Sleigh, sleigh bells, bells. And, and, and smashing wine glasses. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah. I just, and, and that's, 
that that kind of encapsulates their humor. I agree. I, like, I totally if, agree. The, if you don't find the fact that they suddenly put sleigh bells into this song funny, then maybe this is not the band for you. You but can almost you do, picture like the corners <laughs> of his mouth turning up as that part of the song comes. Like, oh, the, yeah. it, like he's had the somber <laughs> frown on the whole time, and the, and then his kind of lips curl up. Like, would you think of that? Yeah. It's like, uh, I just, I think that is fucking hilarious. I absolutely love it. It is such a sort of, such gallows humor. Gallows humor is, makes up yes. so much of, That's you know, a great that, way of phrasing it. And I, th- I right. like where this song sits on the album too. You know, it is mm. a longer song and you've had, you started out long, you've had a couple of sort of mid-length songs, and then this is another fairly long song. But I like where it sits in kind of the middle of the album. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, and our first proper guitar solo uh, on this track as well. Um, That's true. Yeah, not that we haven't had like solo guitar lines before now, but they're generally just like one or two notes wailing away. But this one actually has a proper guitar solo. It's not spectacular. No, but it's, it's not good. over the top, but it fits well. Yep, exactly. It fits the song. Uh, and the way it ends... Like a sort of almost like a howl of despair, which right. I'm sure is is no accident. You know that really high pitched whammy. Yeah, right. You you wouldn't want a sixty second guitar solo here. You know, with shredding, like right. it, it fits the tone of the song well. Um, you know, not that you get that with with any of the songs on this album, but uh, but when they use it, they use it well. I'm not sure if Kenny was even capable of doing that sort of solo. To be perfectly honest with you. Um. Uh, and then this uh, this track also is another one that ends on a straight cut, on uh-huh. a direct cut, and straight into track seven, My Girlfriend's Girlfriend. For me, best song on the album. Love it. Really? Yeah. Well, this was, as I said, this was the single. This was the advance. Not the only single from the album, but this was the advance single. The one that came out, you know, about a, a month before the album. Um, I've got the CD single of this sitting on my uh, shelf up there. Um, the fact that this song starts with the drums and the 60s go-go sort of keyboard line. Yep. Uh, it was already my favorite song in the album before the guitars even kicked in. <laughs> I was like, "Yep, this is ex- this is awesome." Uh, it's and they, I mean, they ain't stupid, you know. Like I said, all their previous singles and indeed other singles from this album, they had to cut and edit and stuff. And so for this one, they were like, "You know what? Fuck it. Let's just make a single that nobody has to edit." Um, 
And I and like that d- they did that intentionally, but I'll also say, you know, it, it, that almost gives off the sense that they that they looked at that as somehow like a downgrading of a song if they had to cut it for radio, if they had to, you know, right. tailor something towards radio. But I'll tell you, man, you could go through most of the songs on this album, and I'm not saying they have to be three minutes and 46 seconds, but I feel like there is a lot of self-indulgence in in their in the length of their songs and some of these songs if they were four and a half minutes instead of six minutes long i i think there's something to be said for that and i and and i think this is a good example of like man they can write a really tight song when they want to and for me this was the best song in the album like i i I love this song i think you're right that you could cut stuff to make singles out of many songs of theirs, not just on this album, actually on, you know, many of their albums, you could cut out, yeah, a middle three minutes or whatever and make a single out of it. But I would argue quite strongly, I don't think that as albums that they would have anywhere near the impact they do if you did that. If you actually did that and then released it as you know, an album that was 20 minutes shorter as a result with all these short songs on it. I don't think that they would be as successful. I don't just mean commercially successful. I mean, I don't think they would be as successful as songs if you did that, because I think that length and that, you know, yeah, self-indulgence, it helps build the atmosphere. I think that's an important part of their music and of the, the feeling and tone that you get from their albums. I completely agree with you. So I'm 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 absolutely not suggesting that this there is one cut I would make on this album and we'll talk about it cuz we haven't reached it yet, but um but I'm just saying like it, to me this song is so strong that I would have liked to see them try that a bit more. Like I and I agree with you that because they're so much of their music is atmosphere. Yeah. You can't it takes a while to build atmosphere. And you can't necessarily build atmosphere over the course of three and a half minute songs, you know, over the course. That's not the type of band that they were, and that's not the type of music that they made. But when they did something like this, it stood out to me as like, yeah, I could do with a few more of these. Right, right. Um, Well, and like I said, you know, they're not stupid. They knew that if they wanted to make a single like this, I mean, you can dance to it. Oh, Uh, the freaking lyrics to this song are so... Which I... I did, incidentally, many times. This was a staple when it was a single of uh, goth clubs in Birmingham. Um, it's humorous. Like, you know, the lyrics are funny. Uh, it's got Pete doing those lovely deep voice vocals again, which, as you said earlier, that's what people expect sure. from him. You know, it that's what you sex. think of. I mean, he's rolling his R's. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the lyrics, they keep me warm on cold nights. We must be quite a sight in our meat triangle, all tangled. Like, yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. Like, just like the, there were songs, and this is one of them where I'm just laughing out loud while I'm listening to them. Like, they're, right. they're a fun song to listen to, and they're a fun song lyrically. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, not that it was a litmus test as such, but it is so humorous. And you have to wonder, you know, how many people who aren't fans of the band just didn't realize that it was meant to be humorous well that's where i was Uh, you know that's where i was constantly saying to myself like people are in on this joke right like i kept i just kept saying that to myself like they're they're hardcore fans get this right like they know that i would hope it's kind of like they're putting an arm around you and it's a wink and a nod and i feel like that with a lot of their songs like we're that they're this is supposed this is kind of a reminder that yeah some of these lyrics are dark but this whole thing is supposed to be fun and i i kind of 
feel like this song sort of embodies that of like that that sense of humor like no matter what they're talking about and what they're singing about and what those lyrics are about this group of people have fun making music together and i think this is one of those songs where that just comes right through right and this is the closest thing that they ever did really to a traditional pop song in terms of you know its length and i mean it, it's got another solo yep uh, it even has a half-time bridge that goes back into the chorus. I mean, how much more traditional do you want to get, you know? Um, and yet it still sounds quite gothic. And, oh, you know, absolutely. <laughs> musically disturbing in a few places. Sure, absolutely. With, like the descending bass bit, which is all kind of semitones. Uh, and then a key change, a fucking key change at the end. <laughs> yep. Oh, just, yeah, I remember the first time I heard it, which, as I say, was before... I mean, the other thing we should say is that this track doesn't actually sound that much like the rest of the album. Uh, no, I mean, know, it, right. Everything from the length to the sort of almost like, I think the keyboards lend a more upbeat feel to right, at least the, the production the intro and the to instrumentation. The song, yeah. I think anybody who bought this as a single thinking that the album would sound like this may have been disappointed. <laughs> I agree. But I, what I think is cool is that by placing it at track seven, they've given you enough time to adjust to what this album is yeah. by the time, like if this was the opener and then the rest of oh, the album, wow, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Like you'd be like, whoa, whoa, what? Whereas yeah, now terrible. <laughs> you're like, you, you're already acclimated to what they're doing on this album. And then this pops up and you're kind of like, oh yeah, this is the single on that. That's cool. And it's a nice sort of, um, you know, kind of deep breath before you continue on with the rest of the album. Right, right. Well, and it leads into, okay, so uh, it ends, it has a proper ending, um, and then it goes into track eight, which is Die With Me. track if you like of what as i said what i call the kind of lush suite in the middle of the album which is like this track and the next two they're all very heavily layered they have lots of acoustics sure. keyboards lots of vocal harmonies very little sort of chug style riffing they're all quite long they're three of the longest songs on the album and frankly if you're not actively paying attention it's really easy for these songs to all kind of merge into one uh, aided by, you know, their habit of just 
cutting from one track straight into the next. And both of these songs start with sound effects too, like uh, with like background sounds. Yeah. Like in the in this song, you're hearing the the plane leave at the airport, and in the next one, you're hearing the sheep sounds in the background. I guess as right. they the, start getting the into rural that. pastoral sounds. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, so you're absolutely right. These these two could blend together if you're not paying enough attention. But this is you, you know you talked about. Um, him writing lyrically about loss and things like that. Like, obviously, this song is about a guy who's just spiraling in, you know, um, basically his girlfriend leaving him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, it, again, total. I mean, the, the, the title alone, Die With Me. Yeah. <laughs> total gothic romance, you know. Uh, I think this was a single as well, actually. Um, I think this is also the first time we hear acoustic guitar on the album. Um, I think you're right. certainly as the as sort of a main line as a main feature, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. In fact, honestly, I think it might actually be the first time they did that on any song. Huh. Now that I think about it, I don't think there's any song that has acoustic guitar like that on Bloody Kisses, and there certainly isn't on Slow Deep and Hard. Um, so yeah, this may actually be the first time we ever like heard it in typo. Um, and yeah, it's. It is a really sort of lush, heavy instrumentation song. Very, very sad, um, but it's also quite tuneful. Yeah, um, I really like at the at the two fifty five mark where it changes with the lyrics. If this time were the last time, and you have right. that sort of, uh, it sort of locks in to that chugging, you know, l- sort of light chugging rhythm. I really like that. Yeah, but, no, that is good. That is good. And then immediately after that, you get. Um, uh the discordant bit see this is where i love you it's really tuneful it's quite not a happy song but it's a very tuneful melodic song and then suddenly you get pete singing that bit lay your head down and it's like suddenly he goes off key like the last when he sings down it goes up in this weird rising semitone and just like oh you know that's that that's not in keeping with the rest of the song. No, but it it sort of is in keeping with the fact that the song is very emotional. You know what I mean? Right. So it's almost like yeah. a, someone almost like losing control of their emotions or, or or barely being able to sort of control it. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, no, it, it fits the the sort of the feel and the atmosphere of the song absolutely. But I just love that it kind of gives you a bit of a jolt. You know, you sort yeah. of, like I say, it's such a tuneful song. And then suddenly there's this bit that's like, Oh, that's not what I was expecting. Yeah. They're not afraid <laughs> to take a left turn. That's for sure. With this, with yeah. this, uh, this yeah. band. Yeah. Um, and, and then this song ends with a, a 25 second coda that has nothing to do with the rest of the song. Now, and, and <sighs> it's a different tempo. It's a different riff. It's just weird. Not that they lost me completely with that, but this is, you know, I could have done without that because I think the rest of the song is really, it really works really well. Again, it didn't completely ruin the song for me, but I, it, I could take is that. Is that the bit that. you'd cut? Yeah. Is that no, the, oh, no, right. no, 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 no. Oh, okay, I would cut right. a bigger chunk than that. that I, <laughs> oh, would okay. just, I would just trim this a little bit. This, right, this song right. is 712, and I would say maybe 645 would have been. Still would have been a nice long song to build atmosphere, but maybe one step too far. Right. Uh, well, and again, another hard cut, and it goes into track nine and the sounds of sheep with burnt flowers fallen.
sure if they are they sheep or is it birds? I can't remember now. Uh, I think it's sheep. Might be some birds in there with it, but I definitely heard uh, some sheep sounds there. Maybe it's both. I this is a very simple song, but very I kind of simple. Yeah, I like it for that. I I like that it is. It's a uh, like a tone poem as much as anything. You know, there's not many lyrics; they're just repeated over and over. Right. A, a lot of it is very reliant on Josh's keyboards actually to act as a sort of bit of kind of percussive dynamics to break things up. Yeah. Um, and it's catchy, but like, again, I'm looking at the fact that it's six minute and nine, six minutes and nine seconds. And I'm saying, did it need to be six minutes and nine seconds? Like, <laughs> like, as opposed to some of the other songs, like what atmosphere are we building here that can't be built in a shorter time frame? Because well, this think, song is I, very simple. I think the wallowing. <laughs> right. Like, Cause again, this is clearly a, a sort of a breakup song about his woman's left him. Right. And I, I think that's the atmosphere of this song is wallowing in self pity. Right. And, <laughs> and not wanting to let her go and not wanting to let this song go and, and being stuck in the same emotion over and over and over again. So I totally get that from the song. Right. Um, you, you know, and especially when you, when you mesh it with the few lyrics that it has, like it certainly conveys its message, you know, it really does, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you're right; it, it's very simple. It's kind of you know, it just goes, it electrifies a little bit at the end, but it is just all essentially the same all the way through. Um, but um, it does start to fade, but it doesn't. They don't let it finish fading before we get another cut right. uh, into track ten, which is in praise of Bacchus. This one has a good doomish rhythm and uh, has some very interesting lyrics to it as well. Yeah, it's the second longest song on the album, this as well. It's 7 minutes 37. Um, I I have a strange relationship with this song. Okay. In the, it's not my favorite song on the album. Mine uh, either. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to lose it because because it has that such a lovely atmosphere i would it. agree with that like this is another song where like does it need to be seven and a half minutes long no but at the same time i wouldn't i would not cut this song from the album right i think it has its um, place in the overall tapestry of the album i yeah i i also uh love uh kenny hickey's lead guitar in this 
uh, song. He does some bits between verses and stuff that remind me of Greg McIntosh from Paradise Lost in yep. some ways, just sort of wailing along <laughs> underneath everything else, doing his own thing while there's a song going on over there. Um, and there's, there's a solo keyboard bit as well that leads into the coda at the end, which is has a sort of wavering synth sound. I don't really know how else to describe it. No, I think uh, that's accurate, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I love that because it's such a sad little keyboard line, so mournful, um, but then leads into, again, this really sort of lushly instrumented, um, you know, with lots of overlaid acoustic guitars and stuff piece that plays us out. Right. Uh, and plays us out into track 11, The Cover, which is a cover of Neil Young's Cinnamon Girl. this cover it's good isn't it yeah yeah it's um, got a great so, keyboard line for sure so you haven't heard their cover of summer breeze on bloody kisses i have not right yes yeah, it's, it's a cover of the old seals and croft song um again pete loves his 60s pop music um i love typo negatives covers i think they did some of the best cover versions i have ever heard partly because there's always humor uh, in them, but also because they really make them their own. I was just like, going to say, like, I listened to this cover and I said, oh, this this is where Anthony sort of established his criteria for what he wants from a cover song. <laughs> not Well, actually, not quite. It was actually their cover of uh, Paranoid, which is on that not live album, uh-huh. Origin of the Feces. That was actually the song that cemented, yes, my co- grand unified cover version theory. But this certainly goes some way towards reinforcing it, yeah. And so does their cover of summer breeze because i didn't know it was a cover i had never heard you know summer breeze before i heard their the album bloody kisses and i just thought it was their song you could easily say the same thing for this one. Oh, had you had you never heard cinnamon girl well i had but in terms of like if you just listen to this album and you didn't know that song like it fits with everything else that they're doing in a way that you're like oh yeah this is one of their songs right exactly exactly yeah um and that's what i love about their covers uh, and like i say again the black sabbath cover is just that is totally if you did not know that song you would absolutely 100 percent believe that it was just one of their songs because they change it 
so much and make it so much their own that uh, it barely even sounds like the original anymore. <laughs> it's not even got the same riff. <laughs> but a lot of times you'll hear a cover song on an album and it's so different from everything else that it either takes you out of the album and a lot of a lot of bands will put the cover at the end of the album yeah so that you can almost ignore it if you don't you know necessarily like it so the fact that it's it's not at the end of the album and the fact that it fits within everything else that they're doing uh made it a a good choice and b well executed yeah that's a really good point um the final spoken bit uh here was added by pete that's not on the original uh he he changed some of the lyrics on summer breeze as well and in both cases basically changed the lyrics to make them more seedy and more tragic yeah <laughs> because that's what they do right because it wasn't enough before right yeah. <laughs> it was well this song might be a bit too happy let's uh let's make it more his seedy. thought was what, what would dracula think this goes far enough no okay <laughs> let's take this one strad von zarevich wants this darker <laughs> if this is going to be in the and, castle ravenloft record collection then we have to uh we have to darken it up a little bit and dark it is um okay and into track 12 the glorious liberation of the people's technocratic republic of vinland by the combined forces of the united territories of europa and it probably takes longer for me to say that than for the track to play I mean, we could. This isn't my big cut off the album, but I, I mean, it doesn't. Oh, I like it. I like it. I don't think it does anything to justify its existence. Like, I, I'm not saying it's bad, but like, uh, okay, well, it, I do. It's kind of a minute of nonsense, and I'm not sure. It's certainly not needed. They didn't need to pad the album. Well, they didn't need to pad it. No, certainly. But first of all, Pete had. He seemed to have a thing about this fictional country called Vinland. There are references to it on okay. several typo records. See, now that um, makes a little more sense. Right, and so this was just one of them. Uh, so there's that. But also, I think it does play an important part in the uh, sort of you know construction of the album because it's a palate cleanser. Uh, it signals a break between that middle, very lush, almost like poppy part of the album and then these final two tracks, which take up a little under 20 minutes just uh -huh. by themselves. And I think that this track serves as a really good kind of, I don't know, just sort of, like I say, a palate cleanser, just resetting your expectations almost after you've got all that. You're like, okay, now we're into something different um, and, you know, on towards the end of the album. So I think it does. So, I mean, you're right. It is ridiculous. It's just, it's nonsense. It means nothing. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think it does serve a purpose on the album. Uh, and that purpose is, yes, to lead us into track 13, Wolf Moon, including zoanthropic paranoia. Oh, my God. 
I really like. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. I really good. like the composition. It's it's super cheesily seductive. Like this is another one of those. Songs. I mean, some of the lyrics are just uh, they're unbelievable in this song. But <laughs> uh, but again, and this is another one of the songs that feels like strangely upbeat. Like in the last minute of this song, it gets very upbeat, almost radio rock, you know, uh, sort of feel to right, it. Right. Yeah, that, yeah. That's a contrast to the more heavy, sludgy. This this almost feels a little sludgy to me. The the sort of chugging, yeah. Um, but then gets very sort of radio rock at the end. But I I do I do really like this song. I like it both for those two contrasting elements and the ridiculously cheesy lyrics to this. I mean, like it's super <laughs> explicit lyrics that. Uh, and I forgot to pull my favorite one, but it is her moon time. I mean, come on, yep. for crying out loud! When there's iron in the when air. there's iron in the air. <laughs> that is something else, man. That, yeah. But again, like it, the dude writes some good lyrics, whether they're oh, yeah. whether yeah, they're yeah. good from a humorous standpoint or whether they're good from an emotional standpoint. Like he's a good lyricist. There is some you could pull up the lyrics for this album and have a good time reading them, even if you didn't listen to the album. Yeah. Well, which, which is a testament first, to that. Yeah. The very first verse, the very first lines of this song, the 28th day, she'll be bleeding again. And yeah. in lupine ways, oh, we'll alleviate the pain. That was the line that I was going to pull. I was like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? I went back and I had to pull up the lyrics to make sure that I heard that correctly. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, this guy, man, yeah, this freaking guy over here. So good. Right. <laughs> Zoanthropic paranoia, by the way, is is real. That it's a delusion. It's a form of madness where you think you're an animal and behave accordingly. Okay. Uh, so obviously, there's right. See, this song, I love it, and it represents one of the things that I most love about the band, and especially about Steel's songwriting, and that is the ability. And this ties in with what you've been saying, really. I think this tie the ability to to take something fairly schlocky like a subject that most people associate with um, adolescent horror movies and bad heavy metal bands and combine it with romance and heartbreak and sensuality to make an epic, tragic, immersive song. They did it with on Bloody Kisses. There's a track on the re-release. They released two versions of Bloody Kisses. It's a long story. But there's a track on the re-release called Suspended in Dusk which is basically a song about vampires. Uh-huh. But it's a, it's a tragic, heartbreak love song about vampires because this is typo-negative. And this is, you know, yes, it's funny and there's lots of innuendo and stuff, but it is essentially a song about, uh, well, you know, is it about a woman who's a werewolf or just a woman who becomes a werewolf when she menstruates? Yes. Is it not about werewolves at all? It's, there are so many layers the, to the But lyrics. the imagery that it conjures is just worth the price of admission for crying out it loud. Really because is. It, yeah. And again, I agree with you. you know, it, clearly, these guys are able to elevate schlock right. to a slightly <laughs> more artistic level. But at the same time, let's put a bookmark in this episode because I don't want to hear any shit about any lyrics that come from any 80s hair band ever. When, well, like this, I, when, the first thing I thought when I listened to this album is, thank God Anthony picked this album because I just have carte blanche for the rest of eternity after listening to this album. Like these freaking guys, menstruating werewolves, uh, meat triangles. I mean, it, it, it yes. So uh, I love it on many levels, but one of the levels I love it on is like, oh, well, I could just do whatever the hell I want for the rest of the entire <laughs> existence of this podcast because that is, um, that is something is, special. This this I, song really is something special. 
It really is. And, uh, I mean, you're right, the, the final coda where it, like, it doesn't just change key, but it, it actually gets faster. That's a bit, yeah. you know, odd. Uh, almost, like, celebratory. But this, uh, this song is almost seven minutes long, and yet, and maybe you disagree, I don't know, but I don't... Does it feel it? No way. No way at all. The whole song just kind of... I never once think, oh, this is going on a bit. Um, I totally agree with you. This is definitely a song that I feel like earns every second of its existence. And right. it, e- it even has a bit with monks, fucking monks chanting in the yep. background. Yeah, no, I'm in for all of it. I, like I said, I'm, by this, I mean, if we're at song 13. If I'm not on board with what's going on here by now, then, you know, right. you've lost trouble, me yeah. six or seven songs ago. So, yeah, by this point, like, I'm, I'm like, sure, yep, now we're doing this. Menstruating werewolves. All right. That, yep. I'm in for that too. Um, so yeah, but I will also say that in my mind, this should have been the closing song on the album, which is probably uh, where we're going to argue because yeah, I think the so. next song yeah. to me, I would just cut entirely from this album. Oh, I would have okay, ended so- on this note. I really like this whole song. As you said, it earns every second. Um, and, I, and, and it's interesting enough and has enough changes in it that I think it would have been a great place to end the album because it really has you thinking about the total package of typo negative. So I would have ended it here. Oh man. All right. So yeah, that it leads, uh, kind of segues into track 14, which is actually really the final song haunted. Was, as we were getting towards the end of it, I was afraid that this that you were going to... Your fears are well-founded, sir. Yeah. Oh, man. No, see, this is the best track on the album. Okay. This so you, tell me track why. track makes the album for me. It's, it's not the most accessible. <laughs> and there are many, many other tracks here that I, that I love. But this, this is the track that when you've listened to the album a hundred times, which I have, this is the track that sticks with you. It has 
a strange time signature. I don't even know what time signature it is, but it works. And oh, it I'll tell feels you what it right. is. The bullshit time signature. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> You've got the church organ keyboard uh-huh. again. You've got descending bent notes everywhere for that doomy feel. You've got Peter's deep voice as it comes again. You've got him reading almost poetry in the middle, or rather towards the end, I should say. Uh, you've got squeals of feedback and machinery to sort of signal pain and anguish. Um, it's just, I love it. I love everything about this song. I, It's unimpeachable to me. Come at me. <laughs> okay, so allow me to tell you why I would impeach it. Um, I think that every emotion that they're trying to convey here has been conve- conveyed in a better way in every other song on this album. So I don't oh. think that we have reached a point on the album where I would say, you know what we haven't done yet? This. And this song presents something new. I think that it that it uh, is super self-indulgent. Th- to me, this feels like a song like, like they called up Lars while Metallica was recording St. Anger and said, I'm going to send you a tune to listen to. Tell us if this is too indulgent. And Lars was like, no, that makes perfect sense. That, that You guys go ahead and throw that <laughs> on the other. That's not self-indulgent at all. Um, so yeah, to me, like uh, that, the note that I made is tries to be epic, but it's just horseshit. That's the note that I made to myself oh, about man. that because I had now again what you just said was if you listen to the album a hundred times, this becomes your favorite song. And I will fully admit, I probably listen to this album twenty five times, but I will revisit this. But album. you still think it's horseshit? <laughs> well, but I will revisit this album, and maybe at some point it becomes that for me. No, to be fair, I think 25 is probably enough that if this track hasn't grabbed you by then, then maybe it won't. But You know what it was, it, is is it was the length for me, because I was listening to it and, it, and it didn't hook me, but I was in for it. And then when I looked at my, and I was listening to it, I gave this album, I, I had to drive to like an hour and a half meeting one day this week, and I listened to it the whole way up, and I listened to it the whole way back. And that was like the 24th and 25th time I listened to it. And at one point, I just looked over at my CD player, and it said like eight and a half minutes. And I'm like, "Are you fucking kidding? Like, wrap it up!" Like, like <laughs> I, I was just like, I just looked over, like, "Holy God, is this still the same song we're talking about here?" And and that's where I got not angry, but I was like, "All right, I'm I'm all set with this because I enjoyed the previous song so much that I was like, man, that that would have just been a great closer for the album. That did everything that." I would like to see typo negative do in a song and it sort of hit to all fields and it perfectly summarized the stuff that they had done before without overstaying its welcome. And then we get this song and it, to me, it just felt like, and maybe it's just the placement of it, but I don't feel like it works as a closer to this album. Would I feel differently about it if it sat somewhere else on the album? Maybe, but as the closer, it was a letdown for me from, you know, the song before at Wolf Moon which I thought just made me feel really good about the album and made me want to start listening to it again. And then after this song, I'm just kind of exasperated. And so it it, it didn't do the thing that I like the closer to do, which is make me want to listen to the whole thing right over again. Right. See, I have exactly the opposite reaction. Uh, it like 
I wish this song was longer. I actually wish that it went on for another couple of minutes. Well, to be uh, fair, Anthony, I mean, if you've listened to any of Anthony's Silencion uh, work before, or or any or any of the other stuff that you, like that does not surprise me at all. I know, a- I know, any I know. more than it will surprise you when I'm like, boy, I love this three minute cheesy hair metal song that has a rip and solo in the middle of it. Like, right, that's right. my that's my formula. You know what I mean? So oh, like, no, the, I know, I know. So, but, so yeah, but, but, and the but it does make is, me want to listen to the album again. That's the thing. I think well, ending on Wolf Moon would have been, I think it would have been wrong for the album because it's too positive. Uh, okay. I'll hear and that. everything, and everything's relative, <laughs> you know, no, but I, I think well, that's actually a valid point. Like I, but I, it's too, it, ha, it has a, you're right, it is a kind of, especially the way it ends, it's almost like a sort of feel-good ending, whereas this is bleak. Oh, this yeah. is the pit of despair, and that, I think, is the perfect way to end an album like this, and especially a typo album like this. Um, the Especially the end, the, like, the whole I hate the morning, just... Oh, just love it, man. Oh, I, like I do, everything I do, about it. I do definitely like the lyrics better than the music in the song for sure right they are great lyrics again, great lyrics yes. yep no, no um, argument there but i think musically it is as well because it is it is lush but it's also bleak like it manages to feel empty while having layer upon layer of instrumentation uh-huh. uh which is not an easy thing to pull off um and just i don't know I sink into the, you know, we're talking about immersion and stuff. I sink into the atmosphere of this song. I just, it conjures up all the right imagery for me and I get to the end of it and I do want to listen to the album again because I'm just like, God damn, that's so good. I love this album so much and that, to me, is the perfect way to close it. Well, and to go back to what you said earlier about listening to this album at a time where you had just recently gone through a breakup, like that makes 100% perfect sense to me. Like if that... If that is your, if that's right. where you're coming I, I freely, to this album I from, I freely admit, yep, 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 I feel like that this probably perfectly encapsulates that almost more so than any other song in the album. So I completely get why you could, you would have that attachment with this song, and it would, and it would be the best song in the album to you. Yeah, and, that's obviously I, and I not where emphasize. I came to this album from, you know, and so no, I, <laughs> I sort of clicked more with the you know, with the more schlocky elements of it and, and appreciated the overall composition and stuff like that, but it didn't have the, the emotional sort of connection that obviously right. it had for you. But I should emphasize that when I first heard the album, it wasn't my favorite track. When I first heard the album, the first few times I heard it, my favorite tracks were, uh, love you to death and be my druidess, uh-huh. and which I still think are great, great tracks, still yep. some of the best tracks on this album. No question. But I thought this song was kind of, it didn't hook me. There was no hook. It didn't grab me. It just kind of slipped out of my mind. But then, yeah, repeated listenings to the album and sort of, you know, focusing, actively focusing a bit more on this track and going, okay, what is it about this track? You know, why isn't it sticking in my mind? And then it just kind of did. As soon as I actually sort of listened to it deliberately, as it were, uh, it just it sunk its hooks in and yeah, has stayed there ever since. I love it. Well, I, I will tell you that I will be listening to this song more because this is an album that definitely has gone into the pile of uh, great albums to write to. Oh, awesome. Okay, good. Yep, yeah. For sure. So yeah, this will be well, one that's in the regular rotation for sure. Like we said, very atmospheric. Yep. Um, so we should just quickly mention uh, that 
there is another track after this, track 15. It's another untitled track. It's a final skit track. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. Which, again, you know, is that self-deprecating humour that runs through all their stuff. Yeah, Um, I kind of love it. But one of the things that I love is that even this gets cut off. Like, even this... Peter doesn't finish. He, says, he doesn't finish the say, word easy. Yeah. Right. He says, take it easy, but it goes, take it easy. Yep. As as if they've run out of space. And the first three <laughs> times, I'm like, did the CD not, because I, I <laughs> exactly. you know, I, you, you put the album on a CD so you can listen to it in the car. I'm like, did it not transfer correctly? Yeah. Or sometimes with my, like, Google Play Music, it will cut off the end of a song. And I'm like, is it? But yeah, then I figured out, no, that's actually what it does. Yep, yep. And that that's the the final joke, the final sort of absurdism and uh yeah, ridiculous humor. Yep. Um and and that is the album. And yeah, as I say, like Typo along with My Dying Bride and Paradise Lost are like my three top favorite bands, basically defined as I would buy anything they put out, like full life. Yep. Um, and, and I did and while they were around, you know, sadly not anymore, but I did, I bought everything they released, no questions asked because they just, as I say, after initially not thinking much of them at all, initially I was just like, yeah, you know, doesn't really do it for me. And then suddenly it clicked and it really did do something for me. Uh, and yeah, I became a lifelong fan to the point where, um, I've mentioned before that. Many, many years ago when I worked in magazines, I did some freelancing at Metal Hammer. And I was at Hammer when um, Life is Killing Me, which is their penultimate album, I think, came out. And uh, I was the only typo fan in the office, basically. I was the only person even remotely interested. And they had a goodie bag, including like a signed digipack copy of the CD. And I was like, gimme, gimme, gimme. So I've got it. It's sitting on my shelf. Signed by all four band members. That is um, awesome. Because, because nobody else wanted it. And I'm like, you fools, don't yep. you realize? <laughs> That's a win for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, I will yeah. tell you unequivocally that you have made, uh, you have added a fan to Typo Negative. Like, I am definitely a fan of their music now. Listening to awesome. this album has absolutely made me want to dig into the rest of their catalog. Like I said, I even went back and started listening to Carnivore. Like, this was a band that I completely missed out on. and. I am now a fan of and will go back and explore the rest of their catalog. So it was, uh, I really enjoyed the album overall. I mean, the problems that I have with the last song do nothing to take away from the right, rest of right. the album, which I really enjoyed. And I, I just want to learn more about them. Like they're de- definitely uh, a new fan here. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Um, so before we get to homework, uh, let me thank everyone for listening. Uh, remember, if you enjoy the show, please spread the word, tell your friends, rate us on iTunes. Um, I know everybody says that it really, really does help if you give us a star rating on iTunes. It makes us come up in searches, you know, yep. more prominently, that sort of thing. Um, and of course, support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and our Twitter accounts. Or, of course, join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashitout. Okay, homework. And you mentioned to somebody on Facebook uh, just yesterday that this was going to be a face melter. Well, so Kenneth White <laughs> said, I'm really looking forward to new ho- some new homework, Brian. I hope you picked a face melter. And again... You know, for both of us, at any given time, there's 10 albums that are swimming around in our head as far as what the next one is going to be. But I decided, based on that comment, that 
I wanted to bring the pain for this next album. So we're going to go to the 2014 album from Thrash Legends Exodus, and we are going to talk about Blood In, Blood Out, which was their 200, 2014 album, which featured the return of their uh, on-and-off longtime singer, Steve Zetro Souza. So this is the band that Gary Holt has been a part of for over 30 years now. He's now playing guitar and Slayer, but he still is a member of Exodus. And they are they are right there as far as the big four. If there, if there was a big five, I think you would, you know, uh, when you talk about Exodus, Overkill, and Testament, those are three bands that probably would be fought over to be included in the big five if there was a big five per se. But yeah, these guys are thrash legends. And this album that came out in 2014 is pretty brutal and i think it will be pretty divisive but i wanted to bring some thrash and i also wanted to bring something that was a little bit newer so i'm excited for people to dig into that whether you're exodus fans or not but it is a it is a face melter awesome uh isn't exodus is the band that kirk hammett was in exodus is the band that kirk hammett was in and as we will talk about in that episode he does a guest solo on one of the songs on this album and your boy chuck billy from testament also features on a couple songs on this album as well fantastic Um, so yeah so this is uh this is definitely very heavy stuff and very thrashy stuff so i'm excited for people to uh for people to listen to that because i exodus is one of those bands that i've been listening to for 30 years now on and off and when they brought back uh, Souza in 2014, I was so back in. And I'll talk about when I saw them in concert, too. Fantastic. All right. Well, I'm looking for, I haven't heard the album. So I'm, uh, I haven't heard much Exodus at all, to be perfectly honest. So I'm, I'm looking forward to giving that a listen. Fantastic. Uh, see you then. Awesome. Talk to you later. <laughs> 